This is the Criterion Cast, episode 195. Tonight we'll be discussing the best Criterion Collection releases of 2018. I'm Ryan Gallagher. Joining me tonight, David Blakesley. Hi, David. Hello, Ryan. I have Arik Devins. Hey, Arik. Hey, good to be here. And we have Jordan Esso. Hey, Jordan. Hey, Ryan. Hey, guys. It is such an honor and privilege to be here tonight. I'm so excited to talk about these films with you guys. We're all happy to have you here. We had a few other people planned to be on tonight's episode, but they had to step away, unfortunately. And so we will try, I will try to make sure that we at least mention some of their choices as we uh, get towards the end of the episode. Um, Just because I think while we all chose, you know, uh, based on our own interests, I think there are some releases from the past year that might get missed and that we should at least mention them because we're only, you know, we've chosen this format of uh, picking our top three releases each and some of their, and there is definitely some crossover uh, between the different people on the panel tonight, but I wanted to make sure that we talked at least a little bit about some of the releases um, that didn't make our top threes. Before we get started, I thought we should talk a little bit about just a few topics, Criterion-related topics, that are important to kind of reflect on, given that this has been a very important year in Criterion's history. I think a lot has happened, and 2019 is going to be uh, an interesting you know, shift in Criterion's um, business model, maybe, potentially. And now that we're here at the end of 2018, we have the chance to look back at kind of the beginnings of what's going to happen next year. I guess, does anyone have any, uh, an opening statement just about Criterion in 2018 overall um, before we get into some of these topics? Yeah, I'll go ahead and, and uh, launch a little bit here. You know, as, as I'm thinking ahead, even the next week or so, we'll be doing our New Year's wacky drawing deciphering episode, and that's always a lot of fun. And of course, last year's, or at the beginning of this year, I guess I could say, uh, the film struck theme at the bottom uh, that took up such a huge chunk of the of the cartoon, you know, provoked a lot of conversation. And obviously, you know, film struck was was a huge deal. And then before the year was done. So was Filmstruck. I, I think that's really probably the landmark event of Criterion in 2018, as well as, as well as the Ingmar Bergman box set, which maybe we'll talk about as a separate uh, item. But those were really, you know, two pretty pivotal events. But I think you know Criterion's balancing and and very sudden, you know, uh, sort of forced withdrawal from the streaming uh, world was was. Pretty, pretty remarkable, pretty memorable. It'll definitely be something that sticks in our memories for for quite a long time. I have to say, I think this was my favorite year of Criterion releases ever. Um, just the highlights were so high, um, and without spoiling what those are, but you know, it was like extraordinary editions of some of my favorite films, and then really fantastic discoveries. So, uh, filmstruck aside, like I just say, this was a really incredible year. Yeah, it's been a it's been a very interesting year. Lots going on. Seems like there's been a lot of news. As usual, the secretive nature of our favorite uh, distributing company makes all of this fascinating. I mean, lots of guessing about what's going on. But um, uh, I'm I, I think not only was it a, a great year uh, in terms of releases, but uh, next year is shaping up to be very interesting. One of the big items of the year that we might not get too much uh, to talk about too much tonight, um, although it did make one of the lists, and so we will definitely talk about uh, one release in particular, was the return of the Eclipse series. Um, it had been over two years since the last release uh, in November of 2015, and then in January we got uh, 
And it had seemed like it, while Criterion had, had shifted some of its attention to Filmstruck and was able to release um, many films that they, you know, before had chosen to, that maybe didn't qualify as needing a, a, a physical disc release, um, they had kind of taken their attention away from the the Eclipse series. And some of that might have had to do with Michael Kresge leaving the company. Um, but, you know, I think that there were still people obviously championing it and then it came back this year and it's just worth noting. And, um, and David, you've already covered the, the two releases already in your, mm-hmm. in your series mm-hmm. and are and now anxiously awaiting what comes next. But, uh, I, I still keep hoping for a, a new release or two. Uh, I'll reference the visit I had to the criterion office in August of 2017, where, you know, I talked with Peter Becker and, you know, he was aware of my columns and my podcast and my, focus at that time on the eclipse series and he did assure me that there were more editions set and he actually dropped a couple hints about at least one other set that is you know presumably still in the works he didn't tell me about these two particular ones the claude Tant lara uh, or ingrid bergman set but he did mention a different director and what they're working on so that has not yet transpired so i'm just sitting here twiddling my thumbs each month saying okay maybe this time but uh yeah he he seemed to feel like that was still a line that they wanted to pursue and uh we did get two uh, early in the year they kind of came actually pretty close together i think what january and march and so uh yeah trevor and i got it together to do a couple more installments of the eclipse viewer podcast actually we broke the Ingrid Bergman set into two because they were six films and that's a lot to cover in one episode. So uh, I'm definitely hoping for more and especially with this little hiatus from streaming, this would be a great time to put some of those, uh, you know, lower tier films out on disc. I I really think the Eclipse series still has a very important place in, um, in the Criterion ecosystem because even uh, with something like Filmstroke or whatever Criterion does next, uh, there is something different about this level of attention given to a certain topic or theme. Like it's cool on Filmstroke that they did that. They would have like, oh, these are the films about this, but it never came together quite like an Eclipse set. I mean, it, it, it you know, they didn't write liner notes. They didn't, uh, the themes weren't as strong. Like the, it's, it, it's just, um, I, the, some of the Eclipse series sets are some of my favorite things Criterion's ever put out. And, and I, I just uh, I really hope that they that they do indeed keep doing it. I think it's uh, I think it's great. Now I, I am curious to see if they could to what level they uh, whenever when, I, I don't know if we're going to talk tonight that much about the Criterion streaming service because we don't know anything. But in some of my dreams, which were incidentally the same dreams I had before Filmstruck was really uh, um, what known of, of what it was like. But I can picture them doing it in a way that would make that gap smaller. But uh, even still, I think the Eclipse series is just such a treasure. I would really hope that. You know, one of the things Filmstruck did do is they had high-definition transfers of films that had no supplements. And I would really welcome, like, a Blu-ray Eclipse series. Do you guys think that would violate, you know, the the whole premise of that concept? I think, unfortunately, for that to happen, uh, the cost of Blu-ray reproduction will probably have to come down, which there is no reason for it to think it will because it's monopolized completely by Sony. But, like, I think that's mainly the issue is that they can't. With, with the no supplements and with kind of the level of title, it's hard for them to sell enough to make the, the costs of doing the reproduction worth it, unfortunately. Yeah, I thought if they could have put maybe two or three films on one disc, you know, uh, that might be a sort of a budget way of doing it. But, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll uh, 
give the nod to RX expertise here and, and all of that. And and again, I did ask actually ran that past Peter Becker and uh, last year, and he didn't see any plans for them to shift in that direction. For what that's worth, did he give a reason why? Uh, he he felt like there was still a market for DVD, and that that's what the Eclipse series has done, and he he didn't really see a. Uh, a, a necessity to reformat the entire series. I mean, it it definitely would, you know, throw collectors <laughs> for a bit of a loop if you're going to shrink the size of the cases or the boxes. I mean, it's not like you can't do that, but it would certainly, it would be a pretty significant shift. Um, and I think they do still feel um, a sense of loyalty to provide DVDs to that audience, uh, that portion of their audience. It'd be like releasing a new giant box set that wasn't the size of anything else. <laughs> that, that doesn't even fit on my shelf. Good Lord. Wait a minute. Criterion would never do something like that. <laughs> I mean, I guess speaking of that, we should definitely talk a little bit about the Igmar Bergman uh, cinema box set. This one was something that had been kind of floating around in a lot of folks' minds over the years, ever since they did the Kurosawa box set, the idea that maybe they should gather together another director's, uh, you know, complete works or as complete uh, as they can get it, you know, rights-wise. And I think we all kind of decided, and I have decided over the many years that we've been doing these end-of-the-year podcasts, that maybe the the box sets should be... um, not included in our choices for, you know, best release of the year, even though this, you know, unequivocally is probably one of the most important and like, you know, largest and um, contains the most amount of work that Criterion has put into, you know, one single skew that you can go out and buy or, or maybe we'll be able to buy one day when it comes back into print. <laughs> yeah, this is like a mega box. It's I mean, when you think about a box set, it's usually like, you know, like the Dietrich von Sternberg set, you know, four or five films, nice slip case, digipacks, booklets, all of that stuff. But the Bergman box set is just a kind of a whole nother caliber. I mean, even last year, I think a, a few of us chose the Olympics box set, which is a huge beast as, on its own terms, but it's still, it's still a spine numbered criterion release. And, and uh, you know, it's, it's just a unique thing that they've never really done anything quite like that before. But, but this is kind of, it's almost like that uh, what, 50 years of Janus films, that old, school you know uh, 50 dvd set that they did back in the early 2000s uh but this is even beyond that you know this is 30 discs blu-rays huge book you know hefty gargantuan so yeah we did decide to take it out of competition because i think it's pretty clearly the release of the year and i'm not sure they'll ever top it honestly Ingmar Bergman's cinema has its own Wikipedia page, (laughs) (laughs) which which, uh, just for reference, the Olympic set, which I adore and which is actually longer than this one does not have its own uh, Wikipedia page. I, uh, I have seen some discussion about that. Actually, I don't remember if it was on one of the forums or one of the Reddit threads or the Facebook groups, but it was, um, I know Wikipedia have been consistently like trying to erase some of the the, the list pages for home video companies when they re- re- like just list all of the releases, um, you know, like indicator has, or powerhouse has been put trying to get like, keep their indicator Wikipedia page and it keeps getting deleted. And I think someone has, has said that the criterion release Wikipedia pages are scheduled for deletion soon. 
um, or at least it's like on in whatever voting area for editors at, on Wikipedia. And I, th- I feel like the, the Ingmar Bergman cinema box set page came up in, in the discussion around the deletion of like home video lists. The list is marked as being considered for deletion the Criterion <laughs> Blu-ray releases. <laughs> the, no, the, the big one. That would be a real shame. There's a ton of information on this page. Yeah, I hope that they I don't, don't understand do that. what Wikipedia. Yeah, it seems kind of ridiculous, and it seems like such a a, re- a, val- a valuable resource. I I check that Laserdisc release Wikipedia page like s- at least twice a month when I'm just looking like, oh yeah, was this a Laserdisc? Oh yeah, it was, and this is when it came out. Well, the idea that they might delete that one is actually upsetting to me because the, the at least with the Blu-ray and DVD one, you could say, okay, well, Criterion has their own list of it. Just go to their website. But there is no list on Criterion.com for the Laserdisc releases. Right. And that's really historical information. I mean, those were unique products, a very, you know, well uh, curated line and 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 it's not something that you can you know you can't make a letterbox list or or you can go to the criterion website to find the equivalent of all that's on there yeah that's it's upsetting to me as well i guess speaking of that uh, creating lists on criterion's website that made uh, this past year was a, a pretty big shift in just the overall design of the website i mean they they unveiled a new design and layout new film pages with high resolution cover art which definitely uh pleads some of the more obsessive fans who might save uh cover art uh to their computers you know someone like me um it's also very good for my site so yeah. i appreciated that <laughs> but they so right before they took d- the website down to relaunch it they had put up a, a page saying you know my criterion was going to be under development uh, the the you know the service that they offer on their website where you can create a profile and go and make lists and you know and write your favorite f- films and, and all that um they took that down and kind of promised in a in a way that that it was coming back um but here we are now uh, at the end of the year and it still doesn't appear to be uh functioning yet i suspect that it will come back but that it it was probably tied into Filmstruck in various ways. Uh, probably things they were going to do on Filmstruck with lists and create maybe with some of the things we wanted, like curating film festivals for people and things like that. And that, uh, that now, of course, they have to re- rethink all of that. That's my guess. Uh, but they do still have the under construction page up. So presumably it's well, still they, they And they specifically said, uh, don't worry, you're not going to lose all your lists. You know, and, and I, I made a few, but some people really put some serious work into it and were you know, maintaining them, updating them, and, and all of that. So I, I do feel bad for the folks who really you know, poured some hours into this. And you know, hopefully they'll keep their promise and, and pull them out of the archive somehow, uh, whatever format the news site looks like uh, at this new my, my Criterion. But yeah, there's some people who I think have been feeling a little bit of stress and anxiety over this, so I do hope they make it a priority. Well, even if the old information returns, I, I was keeping track of my collection through that function, mm-hmm. and yeah. so now I, I don't even know like what has lapsed, so I kind of have to start over, which, which is fine, but that's one of the things I kind of miss is just an easy way to just track what's coming in. Think of all the fun you're going to have putting it all back in. (laughs) You're right. (laughs) No, you're totally right though about the, uh, the, uh, sorry, but just um, the fact that you could also track the individual releases that you had. So if you had the older release of seven samurai and the new one, you could have both in there and making it a little bit different than most, you know, list sites where if you, you know, and then they made it easy, you know, by choosing the cover art and all that. 
Yep. And even the order that you got them in, which is kind of interesting, you know, if you watch your collection grow over the years and what you had to begin with and, you know, how it's how it's expanded since then. So, you know, all that history is kind of lost now. Oh, man. I once emailed them because I accidentally deleted one. No. And I, I, was, I was like, can you guys put it back and in the right order? Because I don't want to have <laughs> yes, to re-enter them all. And they were like, no, you're yep. crazy. We can't do that. Just, just add it again. <laughs> That was probably like the fourth message like that they got that day or something. <laughs> I have since moved to bespoke tools for doing all of that, but I did do the same. That was like where, the way I did that initially as well. Jumping back real fast to the Bergman box set, just because it didn't get mentioned uh, during that discussion, is just how important it feels that it sold out. This It doesn't feel like Criterion has ever had a release this big, this expensive, that also is now unavailable for until you know f- the end of February and now Criterion has has it up on the coming soon page with the you know whatever the second printing is going to look like I mean I'm sure it's going to look exactly the same but um that is just amazing that you know in all the years that we've been talking about the collection on the podcast nothing like this has happened before I, I think it bodes well for us getting a, uh, uh, an Ozu or a, a Kurosawa or some other set like this, which is, I mean, as much as I love this set, that would also be amazing. So I think that's huge and obviously just great to see them doing well. Well, the fact that this sold out pretty quickly in November, I mean, I think they had to basically back order everything until February. Just that, that production schedule says, you know, this is this is a unique product. I mean, even the texture and the the feel of the outer case and putting those books together, uh, you know, it, it, it takes a considerable amount of work and lead time just to get the product ready. You do wonder what their second run uh, what that edition is going to you know look like in terms of volume are they going to have another runoff and sell out or will they print up enough to have a little back stock and inventory for a while uh, will it coincide with a flash sale or a barnes and noble or some other kind of deep discount just to kind of move them right out again or will they let it sit at more of the the higher retail price for a while and let it sort of trickle out for those diehards who just didn't get in on the first cut it'll be kind of interesting to see how they do this second rollout of a product that you know is still apparently there's still a pretty you know heavy market out there there's a desire to get this thing if they didn't get it the first time around i have to say the fact that it isn't available readily contributes to the sense in which it's too good to be true like it's hard to believe it exists and i'm touching it you know but it's just hard to believe (laughs) that this thing exists it's yeah it's so many of the most astonishing achievements in film just in this one little, well, it's not little, but it's, it's, it's little compared to what it contains. Yeah. Yeah. And even the minor stuff, you know, just the way it kind of fills the gaps and really encapsulates almost the entirety of a great artist's career. It's pretty, pretty special. Do you guys want to geek out about some of the smaller details of this thing? Like, like how it's designed, like the color choices, like even the, the paper stock. I think it's is so nice on the book. Hey, the way it feels on the outside is it complete. I, I don't think I've ever felt a uh, a box that feels like that. It, it's it's we- it's very weird in, in a very um, it, it feels very valuable in, in a sense. It's a very high high end feel, uh, and then and then that book as well. Like it's just it's it is such an object of uh, uh, you know the the, the best criterion. Uh, 
uh, as I've said before in in a, t- in a talk I gave at a conference, the best uh, Criterion packaging is just so. I mean, it is in and of itself uh, art objects, and and Igmar Bergman Cinema is, I, I think, by far the best box they've ever designed. It's it's so it's so amazing. How many of you thought that the um, the book was damaged when you saw the grid of Ingmar pictures and the photo has a rip in it? uh i don't think i thought that but that is it is a scary moment when package when when they when designers make choices like that it feels like they're trolling us or trolling me (laughs) mine mine luckily came very well packaged i heard some horror stories of people who showed up um uh, mostly better you know not the worst for wear but in in packaging that made it seem like oh oh no but mine came in a box in another box It, it, it was like a fort knox thing it was it was crazy any thoughts or complaints about the like the the sleeve uh, design for the discs? I know some people don't like sleeves like that for for holding their discs, um, but I guess like I don't know if there are any long term problems that come from sleeves like that. For Blu-rays, there shouldn't be because they're coating. It was a, a problem in the DVD era because they scratch really easily. Oh, okay. Uh, DVDs don't scratch super easily. But I, I, I mean, it's not my favorite style of sleeve. Um, they, these ones are really good. Like, I have a problem with my Zatoichi set where one of them, like, can fall through if I'm not careful, which, uh, like, like, the pages weren't glued together quite right. This one so far seems pretty flawless. A follow-up to that is, what do you guys think about the the layout of the films themselves the idea that they're they've come up with this film festival uh, f- format or you know this this programming kind of where they're saying like we'll pair these two films together and they're not in you know necessarily chronological order or alphabetical order and so it's an interesting choice to to organize it like that um, as opposed to just doing it chronologically for or or alphabetically to make it easier to find a film when you're looking for it I have a curiosity about that. Um, it occurred to me that they're grouping films that don't have supplements, and I wonder, it's, it's an inventive idea. It doesn't really annoy me. I'd probably have preferred chronological, but I just wonder if that idea was at least a practical concern in some way, that they didn't have to change the disc design of something like Seventh Seal and maybe releases that were never intended to get individual production could be just grouped together and then it was like natural then to think of a way to do that that also made sense yeah i I think that's actually probably the best way to go about it chronological you know i I like that but if you really want to watch them in chronological order you you can do that pretty easily and i think they even give you that information in the back pages of the book so uh but, but you're right, you know, they also have to fit things onto a particular disc. And, and so for those standalone titles, why would you want to remaster an entire Blu-ray for, you know, solo release production and then have to redo it again? And what, you're going to put Seventh Steel and Wild Strawberries on one Blu-ray or something because they were released close together or or supplements that kind of cross over? So, you know, it's just fitting everything into uh you know, one one unit there. I think it's just a good logistic planning, and and the idea of a film festival does kind of yeah, you know, it, it does kind of escort a viewer through the guy's career, and and of course, if you want to zero in on your particular favorites or those that you haven't seen yet, free country, <laughs> you know, just <laughs> pop the disc in and do it the way you want. So I think I think they they did a nice you know a nice job of curation and and uh, kind of guiding. Uh, you know guiding the, uh, the the viewers through the through the box 
Uh, I expected David to, to be honest, to, to, to be anti this format, given that oh, he is yeah. the criterion chronology guy, but, um, <laughs> uh, I, yeah. I love it. Um, I, you know, I'm already kind of, you know, I watch films in whatever order I watch them anyway, but I, I absolutely love it. I think it's such an awesome idea and that's the order. I mean, I've, I'm skipping the ones that I've seen before. Um, but for the most part anyway, so far, but I'm watching them in the order they presented them. And I, I just think it's a, uh, a very interesting way to do it that I hadn't, uh, that I hadn't seen before or hadn't thought of that. I, I, I think is really, um, appropriate for Bergman. There are, there are directors where I think that would work less well and, and they are kind of keeping, they're not like going completely crazy with it. Like, you know, late Bergman, they are a little bit actually, but you, you know, Bergman is such a, the themes, it, it would also kind of be appropriate for like Kieślowski, right? Like the uh, directors whose themes kind of cross over, you know, t- temporal concerns anyway, a lot of Bergman stuff kind of is disconnected from time. So it's it, some, in some way it makes sense to me, but I really enjoy it. And so far it's been working out great. I guess my only real like, uh, complaint about the set that I've, uh, kind of, you know, come to accept is that I'm not that big of a fan of the, the image, like the poster image that they chose from, um, persona like with the hand on the face like um and like the like you know cutting up the the letters into those columns the way that they did um i mean it's like kind of too cutesy and like um i just uh i kind of like the back cover photo of bergman that's kind of my (laughs) would be my my preferred cover and i guess you could sort of make it that if you wanted to yeah uh where he's kind of you know kind of making a face at the camera and all that so uh but yeah i I think uh, a portrait of him would have been my preference rather than a still from one particular film given that i tried to convince my wife to let us buy this poster and frame it and put in our house i'm probably uh, i'm probably on the other side from from you guys on that one i'm with you Arik. actually i really love it yeah i i think it just it's so striking it's iconic um and i get what you're saying ryan that it's a little cute but I don't know, if it felt like it wasn't precious in some way, it would almost feel like beneath the the scope that they're that they're embracing here. That's that's a good point. I mean I, I definitely agree with you on that. Well speaking of cover art, let's jump into our first category of tonight's episode where we are going to go through and talk about our favorite covers of the year. Um I think this year was just a fantastic year for cover art uh, all around and packaging. I mean, there were, a, you know, limited number of digipacks over the year and wh- which ones they chose. I think they made the right choices. I think the covers look great um, on all of them. I, I almost, I, I, it's, it's hard for me to think of covers that I don't like. I mean, typically I'm a fan of, you know, the original art over stills from the film, but I think even the covers that just feature photographs of people, you know, like the Beyond the Hills and graduation releases, um, or even posters like the Breakfast Club that, you know, that reflect or that have, you know, like original artwork, I think they all just, you know, continue to showcase like the, the incredible art direction um, that Criterion has become so famous for. And um, they don't, you know, they continue to not rest on their laurels. They continue to challenge themselves by bringing in new artists. And uh, I think 2018 was just a fantastic year overall for cover art. So David, why don't you talk to us a little bit about your choice for tonight? Yeah, well, I, I echo your thoughts there, Ryan. There's a lot of great candidates to choose from. And I 
kind of did my <laughs> preparation for this episode like I, I have done for the past several years. I just sort of lay them all out in the grid and just go one by one, pair by pair, and say, well, the, which one wins? And uh, when I got down to the end of it, uh, I almost maybe even a little surprised when I went with My Man Godfrey, which is an illustrated cover uh, by Seth. And uh, you may maybe know more about him. I know that he did the uh, Make Way for Tomorrow uh, cover. It's uh, kind of that same kind of bold graphic uh, kind of, you know, cartoonish design but but i really i really love not just the cover image uh which is you know great you know godfrey in his butler mode uh you know repeat this order in 30 minutes <laughs> one of my favorite lines as he's holding the tray full of martinis there uh and all these little shacks behind him and the bridge the kind of that iconic scene of of uh, where the forgotten men gather on the you know uh the the shores of of uh the east river there in in new york uh, but the inside is really really great i i really love the kind of the 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 scavenger hunt ballroom party that's illustrated there uh the the images of of godfrey and his uh butler and his forgotten man mode and then just even the uh you know the the kind of lining or the the marginalia around the uh inside essay there you know the hotels the parks the banks the the you know the fancy high life and then the little shacks and shanties at the bottom i just really feel it it captures the spirit of this film extremely well it's got a little bit of that art deco feel to it um and also kind of a little metallic glint there's kind of a shimmery silvery thing which is uh kind of a reflection of this very nice restoration of course it's a pretty well known to be a public domain film and i i of course enjoyed the original dvd release but this is a very nice upgrade and one that i've been hoping for for a long time because i really love this film it's it, it makes me laugh but it's got a real heart to it again kind of like make way for tomorrow which is a little bit more on the uh you know serious side but there's also some pretty great humor in there so it's kind of kind of interesting to link those two particular uh depression era uh, you know, heart tuggers and, and uh, masterpiece films in their own right. So, yeah, that was my favorite cover of the year. Uh, there's some really great ones out there, but uh, I really want to bring a little attention to my man, Godfrey. The, uh, the artist who did the cover. Oh, sorry. Were you going to talk about Seth Ryan? Go for it. Uh, he's just one of my favorite cartoonists slash book designers. He uh, has done a couple, a bunch of stuff that I, I really, really love. Um, primarily, uh, It's a Good Life If You Don't Weaken and um, uh, Wimbledon Green are two of my absolute favorites. But he he's done a lot of book designs and won a lot of awards for that. And he also does his own um, comics and stuff. And I, I love his work. So I was very happy to see the shows. And I also love this film. So that that double awesome yeah i'll have to look up some of his stuff because i'm not really familiar with it but uh it does seem pretty in- inviting he has like an ongoing book series called palookaville that is also um like gorgeous and um you know very interesting uh i i totally agree david the like metallic ink i think is something that criterion uses every once in a while on their covers but it makes it it just adds uh, another layer to the release that makes it feel pretty special and you know worth worth more than just like the paper that uh that it's printed on and it seems like you know and it also kind of like it's a nice treat when you have looked at the cover art on their website and you know like about what you're going to get but then once you hold it in your hand it's it's a little bit different you know like it's got that shine that catches the light in different ways that you maybe weren't expecting um by just by you know looking at the image on the internet arik 
why don't you talk to us a little bit about your choice tonight? Yeah. So uh, for my cover, I chose the film Smithereens. And um, I was sort of surprised by myself that I chose this. I actually think I made a change kind of late in the game to the to, to the choice that I had previously chosen, but it was because I very recently watched this film and the cover is just so perfect for a movie which really gripped me and like one of my most recent like five-star letterbox discoveries. Like I just think it's a phenomenal film. But in the film, um, the the main character is taking these like, she works at like an x-ray shop and she's, uh, x-ray shop. She works at like a, a photocopier shop, like a, a Xerox place and she takes pictures of her face and she makes these posters that she's putting up around town uh, to to try to get some like notoriety or fame or whatever, and um, it's it's just an iconic iconic image from the movie. But they did it in this really cool way on the cover, where it looks because it, it looks kind of like you're in a like a, a bar or a or a venue or something. Like there's a, a difference in the black of the um, poster that she has hanging up and the wall behind it, and it really like looks very textured and like almost three dimensional to it. And then, and, and kind of grungy and grimy, which is also kind of the vibe of the film. So they just did like such a phenomenal job. It it is one of those things where it's kind of like you could have done the same exact thing in a much less effective way if they had just taken like a still from the movie with like, uh, this, this picture in it, but they really went that extra distance to take something from the film that's very iconic and, and, and really works and make it like special kind of in a weird kind of way, the way that they, a few years ago when they did that uh, eraser head where it was a painting of the poster that they had previously, people previously knew this is kind of like obviously different than that, but it's just, there's something about the, just the quality of the tones and the, the way it was done. is just absolutely blew me away. And, and, and I really think it's a, a great example of the, the real thought and effort that criterion puts into every single one of these releases. I, t- I totally agree. I think that's a really great choice. Um, well, before I saw the film, I thought, what is going on? This is really a cover that really drew me to want to know what the film was like. And I think you're dead on that it has that, that sort of dirt under your fingernails feel that the film leaves you with. And also, like, what Ren wants you to see about her. Like, I think she, she isn't really this person, but I think she'd really <laughs> love it not, if she yeah. were. Yeah. yeah, agreed. Strong. Yeah, that's, that's really well, well put. So, Jordan, we uh, chose the same film for our favorite cover art. And uh, why don't you talk a little bit about uh, why you chose it? Uh, yeah, I guess I'll just piggyback on that thing you were saying about the metallic ink, because this has that same, um, that same uh, little bonus there that I wasn't expecting, just as an homage to icon paintings and gold leaf. His halo is this shiny metallic um, experience when you get in front of your face here. Um, but this is just, it's really, it's really kind of a sublime, you know, perfect image. And it almost verges on being too perfect. But so I almost, I almost changed my vote because I thought it's almost too precious. But, you know, <laughs> it, it embodies themes of the film as well as just being like a really smart, you know, somber image. Like, you know what? You should probably name it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I was waiting for you to say the name of the movie. <laughs> I, I thought I'd maybe talk for another 15 minutes and then leave it as a, as a bonus surprise. <laughs> this is the cover for Andre Rublev, you guys. <laughs> and, um, it's, it's got the, you know, the image of Andre um, posed like, like an icon painting. And then, and then his figure is, is, is overlapping. I, this is a photo montage, but it looks like a drawing when you first look at it, just because of the way that the image is built up. So he's overlapping these, you know, these, these kind of biomorphic 
images of nature. And that's, I think, a really smart way to state some of the themes of the film without being too on the nose, like the relationship, uh, you know, of the, the human to the landscape, you know, the soul to the world. Um, and it, it does have this really statuesque quality, but upon closer inspection, like it looks, you know, terribly human. You know, he, look, he looks almost like, like um, he's got perfect sculpted cheekbones, and then you look close and he looks almost homely. Um, so there's that, that sort of push and pull between like the ornately beautiful and the disturbing. Um, I, I just, I think it's fantastic. Um, the whole package actually is, is, is done in the same vein. And uh, I'm curious, Ryan, um, as you talk about what you like about it, um, tell us what you think about the fact that there's a poster included. Oh boy. Oh, it's definitely in my notes. <laughs> it's like, you know, I, I often think about this, the, the idea that like in, in the, in, in like the choice. Okay. So you, you guys know that thing where, you know, you can have uh, good, fast and cheap, but you can only choose like two of the three, you know, that saying, like, I think it comes into like, in like, software design and stuff like that but yep i feel often like that with criterion releases where it's like you can get a digipack you can get good art or and then you can get a booklet and you have to choose like two of those you can't have all three because (laughs) (laughs) uh well not these days you go back to my private idaho and slacker (laughs) and some of those where you had it all totally totally the beautiful the beautiful time of dual format which god i wish that would have worked out i'm so mad at all of you dvd only people but because that was the that was there right everything was like a wide digipack craziness so yeah the andre rublev art is incredible it's uh new art from uh nasim higson who you know did the poster art for the janice films um tour of this restoration he's done um several other pieces for criterion like the clouds of sils maria uh, cover and um the cover for phoenix and he uh, has an amazing style, I think. And the, but this one, I think, is his best of all of all of them so far. Um, I, I totally agree. The, the metallic ink definitely makes this fe- this object. When I was looking at the old cover art for it um, and, and comparing it to this one, it, you know, I I wasn't crazy about the old one until now that I'm looking back and I'm thinking, like, you know, what I actually appreciate what that old cover art did um and you know it's probably like a poster uh for, for the film but like just looking at it as it, it, its own thing um it almost feels like the, the new cover art is like what he would be holding in that painting like the the object like the precious the holy object that he has uh is holding in his hands and uh nice and it you know the fact that it's a digipack the fact that it has like this incredible artwork is great um the idea that we have to sacrifice a book to get the poster is kind of frustrating um and i'll come back to this in a in another edition that's on my list um but it is it you know if it wasn't just so frustrating to try to read the essays on this giant thing that you have to unfold and um if if they had been able to come up with a better solution for this i'd and you know like i I don't know if any of you have run into anyone, but I don't, I don't see very many people in my head, uh, putting like tacking this up or putting this up when you have, you know, something on the, on the, the reverse and something that you would actually want to go back and and look at again. So it's just, that is frustrating. Well, and you have to fold it so small that you got all these creases. Yeah. I mean, how, <laughs> yeah. how much ironing are you going to do to really smooth it out? Yeah. 
to, you know, it's it's distracting. I mean, it's nice to give the the artwork kind of a larger format, but you know, we're not selling laser discs anymore, so those posters really get you know bundled up and uh, kind of defeats the purpose. I'm okay with most of that, actually, you guys. It's it's the resolution that bothers me. Mm-hmm. If you look at it, it's blurry in places, and it feels like it was a previous cover design that it was then. Like, like not finished appropriated for a poster well but maybe just maybe done at a resolution designed for a blu-ray case and not like triple the size yeah it definitely doesn't um, look as as nice as the the cover um yeah. which is kind of like in the same style but you're yeah you're totally right i mean even like you can see like his the way that his hair is it's like it or even like it feels like it's cut around his hair uh yeah so i i agree but I think overall, though, it is like such a beautiful image, and it's it yeah, is one that I I have contemplated like just ordering the the movie poster of uh, that they sell on the website for it. For sure. Um, Can I give a quick shout out to like a, a runner up? Yeah, absolutely. Because I think this got some hate, and I just like to say that I disagree. The cover to Ball, um, and along the same lines that Arik was bringing up about Smithereens, this cover feels just like the film. I mean, you watch the film and then you look at this image and I swear to God, it's like of the same cloth. Um, this is kind of like <laughs> how he appears to the world. Um, and it also is a, is a real painting. You know, it's like, it's not graphic design. It's not illustration. This is, this is a real painting. And I just feel it's, it's just perfect for, for what it's trying to achieve. Well, Jordan, I think you served me up for my uh, round one selection. There is that okay, right? <laughs> yeah, let's go on there. Um, All right. So, uh, I guess we'll we'll move into the uh, our top three. So, this is going to be our our third highest rated uh, release. Our you know personal favorite, third favorite, personal favorite. Um, so, David. Tell us a little yeah, bit about so your I'll, I'll talk about Volker Schlondorf's Bau. Uh, yeah, I know that there's at least one person out there who's cheering me on. That's William Remmers. He was my uh, partner in uh, discussing this film as the season opener for my Criterion Reflections podcast. And so I will definitely say my picks are all very subjective based on, you know, personal enjoyment. So, you know, we kind of make the distinction between best of or favorite of. And so I'll definitely say all of these are my favorites of. Of 2018 and and Baal uh, is a really interesting film but I think a lot of it a lot of my enjoyment was just from that whole experience of just really immersing myself in this film it was fun to cover a brand new release on my podcast which of course most of the titles are pretty deep catalog cuts and all of that but I was just so intrigued the the further I got into it of course the immediate calling card is this is a young Reiner Werner Fassbinder and his his company just right between uh, uh, films like Kotzelmacher and Gods of the Plague very early on when he was directing films he was also cast as a lead character in uh, in this film uh, an adaptation of a play by Bertolt Brecht that Brecht wrote when he was 20 years old in 1918, just at the after the end of the First World War. Uh, Fassbinder was only 24 years old or so at this time. And it's a story about this kind of, uh, you know, hedonistic, go-for-broke, anarchist poet, you know, free spirit wanderer who just leaves a 
a trail of of tears and destruction behind him as he you know exercises his genius in his own unique way and so uh it's a pretty fascinating uh just the, just the whole experience of, of of getting ready for that podcast reading the brecht play uh william of course linked me up to the david bowie version of this that he recorded in the very early 1980s and so really there's just you know it's it's kind of a dense work it's a kind of a movie that can leave a lot of people scratching their head like what's going on here what's this all about but uh you know with a little bit of work i think it yielded just a lot of real uh rich enjoyment as i just learned more about brecht more about fassbinder uh, schlondorf i think did a really good job and this is just a really interesting obscure nugget that was kind of brought up out of the vaults and uh you know uh, the, the story itself i i could relate to that i i just i enjoy those stories about these reckless young men who uh you know they're not necessarily aspirational role models but they they make an impact and the story is just it was pretty engaging so um you know i just really had a lot of fun uh discovering this film uh that i didn't even know existed until you know probably the the day that it was announced by criterion in uh you know late i mean it was a march release so i guess it must have been just about a year ago or you know december of 2017 that they first announced it so yeah i had a lot of fun with it it was definitely a surprise release i don't think anyone had been predicting this one to come um from criterion it was it certainly wasn't on any of the rumored lists i don't think um and that, I think it had like a European DVD release like a year or two ago, uh, but Criterion. I think I think they just saw this kind of coming together of a lot of different elements. You know, you got the Fassbender crowd, Bertolt Brecht, Schlondorf. He's not exactly like a, a magnet, but he makes interesting movies. And I think they just enjoyed the opportunity to say, "Hey, let's put something out there that uh, is a bit of a curveball and a surprise, and and has a lot of uh, artistic merit and integrity to it as well." I would offer that. You know, there's so many films that are made about artists where the work that the artist makes is not captivating or it's presented in a way that does not convince you that they're, you know, an incredible talent. And, okay, so it's Brecht's script, teleplay, um, it's his play that's um, directly adapted here. So, but the poetry in this film that the character writes is amazing. You know, like the, the theme of the sky that keeps coming back. It's always like incredible poetry. And then the film itself feels like a poem. So there's, there's several layers in which I was just so happy with the depiction of like art and the creation of art and the pursuit of art that even though this guy is kind of off the hook and despicable <laughs> for most oh, of yeah, his journey. Oh, yeah, to say the least. Right, right, right. Um, we understand the magnetism of, of who he is. Right, right, and and for for Schlondorf to recognize that in a young Fassbender, you know, where, you know, we didn't know exactly where his career was going to go. He'd already gotten a couple of films under his belt, and he, of course, would be very prolific. But it's like it's just it's just really kind of remarkable and amazing that uh, this this project came together. And let's not overlook Margareta von Trotta either. She is pretty pivotal, a kind of lead female role in this film, and she went on to have a pretty uh, interesting and distinctive career too. So you just got a lot of really cool stuff going on. And uh, yeah, you're right, Jordan. The 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 cost that art exerts upon its creators as well as those who are kind of caught in the maelstrom of of sometimes violence or uh, relational drama uh, all those things it's just it's pretty fascinating one of the things that um 
many of us on several of the forums over the past few days have been thinking more about is the idea of the criterion producer um, as the as the you know curator director of of a particular production, and um, it's interesting. Jason Altman was the producer behind this one, and um, his was a name that I didn't really had, hadn't really paid much attention to. I mean, I feel like I I, I noticed some of the um, producer names popping up uh, more frequently, or I've seen them over the years. And um, I guess I just wasn't familiar with him as a as a Criterion employee. And it's interesting to see, you know, when we group all of the producers together, like some of the other works that they put out this year, including, you know, like he did Ball, but then he also would later go on to work on, or, you know, or he was probably working on it at the time, but the, the fast minute release of Eight Hours Don't Make a Day. Yeah, actually, if you know, I'll I'll just plug a little list that I'm working on over on Aaron West's Criterion Now group on Facebook. I just made a Google Sheet where I'm starting to you know fill in the producers of all these different discs, and I also added columns for uh, cover art and liner notes just to kind of have a kind of looking at each of these films as a as an object in themselves. You know, obviously the movie that it captures is hugely important and and definitive, but the people who make these little packages and uh, contribute those little, uh, you know, the, the additional supplemental materials. But but like you say, that, that producer character who sort of has a vision of how do we want to frame this film? How do we want to present it? How do we want to gather all this stuff together? But really create that impression, kind of like what you're saying about, about the cover, Jordan, you know, how that cover epitomizes and captures and expresses to you know people just passing it on the shelf here's what you're going to get inside and that's that's something criterion has been doing a pretty brilliant job of for quite a few years i mean i remember back in the early 2000s just being fascinated by these films i'd never heard of just picking up the case and say wow what is going on inside here you know and uh, a good package a good cover design uh will really even the blurbs on the back you know that's all part of that allure that mystique that that draws us in and i think this film being as as really completely unknown as it was uh, had a lot of really intriguing tantalizing assets to put out there and say hey check this out did he also do the berlin alexanderplatz reissue that's coming out next year uh i don't know because i don't have that on my list that i'm looking here of the 20 well and they don't it may be because it's a reissue right. maybe there's not a producer I don't know. well we d- yeah it, we were that's one of the discussion points is whether that changes in between releases like or reissues mm. interesting one, I'll just throw a little trivia bit because as I've been working on it. So the Rossellini War Trilogy, I think. Oh gosh, let me. I'll, let's see if I can look it up real quick here. The Rossellini War Trilogy had an assistant producer come on. Let me just scroll down here. Give me a second. Oop, oop, oop. Too much. Okay, so in in uh, let's see, the original version was jo- Johanna Schiller. Uh, she was the producer of the DVD set, but then now Johanna Schiller and Jason Altman are the producers. Uh, so he got a co-producer credit for the Blu-ray reissue. That was kind of interesting. So it maybe I think that, I think they give carryover credits when it's kind of just a, a standard upgrade. And I just you know Berlin Alexanderplatz. They do have like a new cover and all of that, right? I know same cover. Oh. Oh, is it the same cover? Okay. Yeah. So it probably will be the same producer as put the original product together. But when there's a revamping, then there's probably going to be a new producer credited there. Like I say, we just started putting this list together like last night. So it's still very spotty as we all chip away at it. 
I guess one more bit that I have to say about the cover is that, like you were saying, it is a beautiful cover, the painting. Um, I'm a huge fan of the way that they put the text running down the side. Um, I like the font that they chose, Mm -hmm. uh, or, you know, the typeface, and it's, uh, I think it's just well laid out. It feels German, you know, the way that it's laid out so neatly and nicely. They just didn't want to lay anything across the image itself. I think they kind of respect the integrity of the painting there. That's cool. Yeah. Uh, well, let's move on to the next uh, release of the night to talk about Arik. What is your uh, number three, your third uh, favorite choice of the year? So uh, this was intended largely for our good friend Scott, who is not with us tonight. Uh, and uh, so hopefully he'll listen to this or maybe I'll just tell him. But uh, a few years ago, we were on some other podcast. I don't even remember which one it was or whether it was during the show or, or sort of as conversation outside of the show. But I mentioned sort of casually that I was very, very much not a fan of the work of Ingrid Bergman. And uh, and he said something to the effect of, who have we invited into our midst? Why, why, would, why would we be friends with this such a such a wrong sort of fellow? Ingrid Bergman is uh, is one of my least favorite actresses, um, which I know what? puts me I, puts me in a minority opinion. But I'm very excited to learn more about her and hopefully turn that around. Have you seen the Rosalind Bergman movies? Oh yeah. Set? Yes, I sure have. I just don't know what to do with you anymore. Then <laughs> I really like Journey to Italy. I'll say that. That's my least favorite. No, I really yeah. don't know what to think. Yeah, and I really hate Stromboli. I really think we're. You oh know, man, I'm just wrong somehow. You're but blowing I don't my know. mind. I don't know how to fix it. <laughs> and uh, and so my uh, my third release of the year is the Ingrid Bergman's Swedish Years set. And I want to be clear here that I have only watched the first film on this set thus far. Uh, the Count of the Old Town, but I loved it, and I specifically loved Ingrid Bergman in it. And be- given that I have watched every, basically every other Ingrid Bergman movie that is in the collection until this set, and have not enjoyed her in basically any of them, sort of tolerated her in in Voyage to Italy, uh, hated her in in uh, both of the other films on that Bergman Rossellini set, didn't enjoy, uh, particularly enjoy Spellbound, hated her in Notorious, like really, really just do not enjoy her work. Uh, all right, all right, you, you're not uh, winning anyone over here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really, uh. I was just going to say, who, who is this guy? Scott's Ryan original David, point stands. <laughs> <laughs> I totally understand, but I, I feel like this set is, is, is allowing me to uh, find a new way a new a new life with Ingrid Bergman and I'm I really I want I know it's my fault and not not her fault so uh I I, ju- I just loved the kind of the old town and I know it's kind of a a minor film in a lot of ways but um I loved it I absolutely loved it and I thought she was great she was so charming in it and so I'm I'm really excited to watch more of the films on the set and hopefully finally rehabilitate rehabilitate my my broken relationship with you know as a child my favorite movie was Casablanca so I mean there's something here I think I can do it but uh but anyway so yeah so my my choice of the year is the and also uh, what we said earlier that I'm so happy the Eclipse series is back and and this set I mean it's rare even in the Eclipse series that we get six films uh and and you know what a great thing to 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 focus on like you know a specific actor is rare also in the um criterion collection like there's the sabu set there's there's a couple things but actors don't tend to be the the focus and uh so it's all of those things put together um i i just love the set and i also love that they chose that yellow uh which is not a you know the eclipse series they kind of play around with colors in a different way and it, it uh it works really really well and on top of that if you remember 
uh, at the beginning of the year, the clue in the 2018 New Year's drawing of the moon with a woman holding the Swedish flag, there was a ton of debate at the time whether that was a clue for uh, an, Ingrid Bergman, uh, an Ingrid Bergman eclipse set or an Ingmar Bergman um, uh, a giant release. And uh, it turns out that it's probably a clue for both, which <laughs> then proves the existence of double clues, which changes everything in the <laughs> Criterion <laughs> clue Kremlin- Kremlinology game. And so it just all of that together. I, I love I love this set. Well, you're in for a treat because you're going to see Ingrid Bergman really explore even aspects of of her acting abilities that I don't think Hollywood ever tapped into really. So uh, there's some really cool stuff uh, waiting ahead for you. I think the, so excited. The, I uh, love that you said that you love the yellow. Go ahead, Ryan. No, I, I love the yellow too. And I was just going to go off on a little thing about how it's such a nice, I mean, I'm glad that they did the yellow to kind of pair it with the Rossellini Bergman set, um, as well as the release that they did, the documentary, the Ingrid Bergman in her own words documentary um, that came out a few years ago and that we talked about um, on an episode of uh, the the Chronicles where we were talking about that month's releases. Um, And I remember watching it then, watching that documentary and you know, seeing them go through this period of her life and talk about these various films uh, that she had made that were, you know, harder to, f- to see, um, especially as, you know, it, as Americans, it was harder to find those at the time. Um, and then it was such a, a treat when this box set came out. And um, I'm so glad that you picked it just so that we had a chance to kind of, again, like, show some attention to this series that, you know, deserves to be praised, but is, you know, by the nature of its format and the costs involved, like it, it's something that's that less, the fewer fans um, or, or fewer collectors of the Criterion Collection probably devote shelf space to the Eclipse series than to everything else. Let me take this time then to, to once again, I've done this before publicly before, thank David for getting me into the Eclipse series and uh, being the reason I have all of these wonderful sets on my shelf. I'm honored and it's my pleasure. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm glad. And yeah, definitely give our episode a listen when you uh, get through even the first three, because there's two episodes that we broke down for that one. But I, I will I also say will. to listeners out there who are, you know, all, you know, you know, understandably and, and very legitimately into Ingmar Bergman and, and getting into his career and his set, watching these films really helps put his early Swedish stuff in context as well, uh, just to understand a little bit more rounded out vision of the Swedish film industry, which I think was a pretty significant you know, a uh, body of work. Uh, it's not just Victor Showstrom and the Phantom Carriage and, and all that. They, they were doing some pretty cool stuff. And, you know, two of the films that are in this set, uh, Woman's Face and Intermezzo, were both adapted into Hollywood films. Of course, Ingrid did both the Swedish and the American version of Intermezzo. And and uh, Joan Crawford, I think, did the uh, Woman's Face adaptation where you get to see the beautiful Ingrid Bergman with her face all disfigured because of, a, of an accident and all of that and it brings out this real darkness in her character so uh just even just you know the the films themselves are interesting well done uh worthwhile stories and they they say they just create sort of a a sense of what was what else was happening in european cinema beyond some of the you know classic uh, english or french films from that same 1930s era uh, that are of course beloved classics so 
Uh, there's a lot, lot to enjoy in this set. See, Ingrid Bergman disfigured Arik. That's catnip for you because you hate her so much. <laughs> 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 oh man, I, I, I linked on. I wrote about the 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 first set in this film recently on my site, and it, I, the the first sentence of the review is like. I've written somewhat extensively over the years about my general distaste for the work of Ingrid Bergman, and every one of those is a link to one of the things I've written about not liking her. Well, I will, um, yeah, I'll piggyback on the whole, uh, you know, what did you say, Arik is funny, rehabilitated my relationship with Ingrid Bergman. Yeah. <laughs> because my pick uh, is West Front 1918, and I feel like this film rehabilitated my relationship with George Wilhelm Pabst. Uh, because I'm not a fan of Pandora's Box. I find it kind of bloated and meandering, and um, I've honestly never made it till the very end. I've tried a couple times. It feels like homework. Um, so well, now I'm, I'm really looking at the- you the way you were looking at me, because that is a classic. <laughs> I love that film. <laughs> I don't like it. <laughs> um, but I watched these uh, two releases this year, um, West Front 1918, and uh, let me see if I pronounce this right, Comrade Shaft. Uh, and they're amazing. Like they're the first sound films uh, by Pabst, and the the one that I'm going to talk about in particular, West Front 1918. Um, there's a lot of great like inner war films this year, but this one to me was the most revelatory. I felt like it it taught me things about the war genre that I hadn't quite paid attention to. Like a lot of the trappings and cliches of modern war films are missing here, probably because they haven't been invented yet. But that muscular sensory overload that is just like the hallmark of, you know, a lot of the war films that, that we really like and respect is missing here. Like the sounds are very slight, very restrained, even muted, maybe beyond the point of believability. But the kind of brilliant effect, or rather the virtue of it, is that the war feels small. It feels like, you know, this, this group of guys that we focus on, like they're almost treating like Fighting World War One in the trenches is a nine-to-five job. You know they're kind of, to varying degrees, excited about it. They go on leave, and then they go back to the trenches, and and you don't get this sense of this sprawling world war. There's just some trenches that these particular guys go to, and it's not till very late in the journey that that the the true consequences of war are are revealed. Um, and I just I really loved that that realism of the the lives you know on display here. And there's this. This really smart marriage subplot that addresses the price of withholding forgiveness, and um, I was—I just—I was so surprised. I was—I was so happy to to now be, you know, a, a popst uh, devotee, um, and uh, yeah. So I can't—I can't recommend this enough. This, if this looked like something bloated and meandering and boring, it's—it's um, uh, it's amazing. It was interesting that they chose to separate the two films, um, where the where the Masters of Cinema released them. Um, as a single release, um, they did, you know, go in and include uh, bonus material for this one. But um, I wonder how if if they just had too much stuff to cram into one single release and they wanted to break it apart. I don't know, but it's another one of those um, double uh, releases that that they kind of like pair. Yeah. The graphic design here, like you can on the spines, like the the font alternates. Um, and I, I, I wish they would kind of do that more, even if releases by the same director were released in one year and then another. So I appreciate that. I mean, I, th- I think they do to some extent. I mean, you know, like I'm, I'm staring at the pile of, of re- releases and, you know, like the Karismaki 
ones have like a consistent design across, you know, m- many months in between them, and they uh, they stick with the same font on the side, and they or you know they have the same uh, artist come back to to do a new illustration. They did it with the King Who films as well this year. The Dragon Inn coming after A Touch of Zen. They, I mean, they look. We knew the covers way back when because they were posters, but they look very much similar. And then even like the like. Mizuguchi, Jikawa, like those films often have like a similar through line of art and cover designs too. Yeah, the Mizuguchis really are like a little subset. You know, they could all be lined up on the shelf next to each other and really feel like there's a kind of a whole, you know, I don't know, there's a characteristic of them that really fits nicely. But like the Antonioni films don't. Um, the Dardenne chalk font they used for the first couple didn't carry over. I'm thinking of things like that. Yeah, like yeah, sure. Sometimes they abandon it. Well, mm-hmm. in the case of the Antonioni, I feel like they did it for the three that they needed to, and then they don't do it for the others. And I kind of agree with that on that one because it's a trilogy that, you know, that they released really spread out from each other. Except oh. there's that damn dual format release right <laughs> in the middle. I love it. <laughs> I love it. Uh, I agree that I love the, the, the cover for it. It feels very like, I don't know. It feels restrained in a way, it, even though it's, you know, like an image with the the text above it. It does also pair very nicely with Kameradschaft and uh, the artist behind it, Anthony Garacci, I think, is the guy who he also did the cover for 45 years. Um, that beautiful image of like the, the glacier, the snow. Um, and then he also did... I think the cover art for the Decalogue where he had come up where, where they use that, uh, that, that kind of beautiful image with the squares in it. Um, so he's definitely an artist. I think that criterion should, uh, keep his, his card on file with them. Well, it's weird that they don't say who did the covers on either of the pages for those two films on the site though. They usually do. And they don't for either of those. There's been some inconsistency with that. I don't know if it's just, oversight or if they've gone back and forth with their policy or or what the deal is but it's it is strange i will say about those two films i i'm glad that they were more than just kind of historic relics you know like early german sound cinema they're really both very compelling films so i just wanted to kind of endorse your choice there jordan these are really uh, good you know they, they they might be overlooked by some you know old black and white you know obscure what is this but they're they're, they're very powerful film yeah camera shaft is also totally an incredible experience it just doesn't feel like it addresses as big a theme as west front no but but just the effects of this collapsing mind my god it's just so claustrophobic and so intense and insane in some seasons some scenes it's like did they actually dig a mine and collapse it just for this scene it's it's very i don't know very very incredible uh visual effects of of you know beams and boulders and walls caving in and it's it's horrific it's pretty amazing how they put that together and the verisimilitude that they created this of this mining disaster yeah it's astonishing cinematography especially for the time yeah it's unbelievable and then you worry about the pyrotechnics too like you're saying like these small claustrophobic spaces and considering what special effects at the time must have been like just light on fire hope it doesn't kill anybody (laughs) (laughs) indeed so my choice my third favorite release uh of the year is going to be uh night of the living dead um i I had a, it was interesting trying to pick my three, you know, every year when you're, when we're whittling down our lists and trying to decide like, which are our favorites of the year, like which ones do we come back to, or do we want to help champion in, you know, in this forum? Um, 
I feel like my three choices tonight, I've, I've, I have over the past couple of weeks since I came up with them, I've been thinking about like what ties them all together and how they, you know, have influenced me in my life, how they continue to influence pop culture. And this one, um, and you know, unfortunately my three picks are like, they all feel kind of like easy picks and English speaking, English friendly picks. And so I feel like I'm betraying like the, the art house nature or the you know, foreign film art house nature of the criterion collection by choosing the three that I chose, but you know, they, they put a spine number on these films and so I get to pick them. Uh, yeah, we'll cover favorites. that snobby art house stuff for you, Ryan. Just, <laughs> just you do you. <laughs> well, I think night of the living dead is such a special film in the way that it has, you know, gone on to basically like help define the, the modern horror genre when it comes to zombies. Um, and you know, the fact that George Romero is such a, a huge figure in the, the world of horror, even though, you know, he passed away, obviously, but he still looms large, I think, in the minds of of horror directors, as you can see in some of the supplements, the, the interviews and documentaries that are uh, featured on the, on the second disc of this release, um, which is just, you know, absolutely stacked with uh, all kinds of bonus, bonus materials. I mean, you can spend a whole night just watching all the supplements and not even getting into the film itself. And, you know, those are my favorite kinds of Criterion Collection releases. I mean, going back to what drew me in initially to collecting these films was the fact that you were just getting this this whole laundry list of uh of supplements to, to go along with the film to help kind of teach you why this deserves uh, to be a part of this collection. Night of the Living Dead, when it was, it had been announced, I think there was a, a restoration, the restoration that's included with the release was announced and it had suddenly gone around that Janice was going to be touring the film, which kind of came a, a bit as a surprise. I mean, it didn't seem like a film necessarily that, um, like that Criterion would release something like this or that Janice would tour something like this. Um, and you know, it, it was amazing because it was coming around the anniversary, uh, of it, or there was another, um, kind of competing release from one of the other companies because this movie has been in the, essentially the public domain or, you know, it wasn't copyrighted when (laughs) there's a, there's funny stories about why it wasn't copyrighted. The fact that they had, they changed the title card on it, which had the copyright symbol on it. Um, and that's why it never, you know, why it's available to be released from all these, you know, dollar DVD companies at Walmart. It's just a, a movie that you don't really have to pay for the rights to. And, uh, it's it's fascinating uh, as as that that part of history, but you know the idea that Criterion was going to release a new restoration um, was something that was talked about a lot up until its release, and then once they finally detailed what was going to be included in it, um, the fact that we get this work print copy of the film, The Night of the Anubis, um, the fact that we get you know. All, all these interviews, the the 16 millimeter dailies that are included are just absolutely fascinating to watch and see his, uh, like what it was like on the set of the movie. Um, the fact we get, you know, two audio commentary tracks. Um, there's also a video essay from, um, uh, every frame of paintings, Tony Joe and, um, and his partner Taylor, they, they went and created, um, a pretty fascinating, uh, essay on here that I think, um, is one of my favorites if, um, and you know, it's always a treat to, to see them continue to make these video essays, um, outside of their, uh, you know, now, now closed channel on YouTube. This movie was shot for $114,000 and made $30 million. 
that's, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. It's a pretty amazing achievement. I mean, and it still holds up. I think the, the movie, you know, despite its low budget and, um, you know, relatively small nature, like they, they use everything to their advantage. They use, um, simple effects. They even use, you know, the, the whole idea of using black and white film, um, adds to the kind of timeless nature of it. I mean, it, it, if it was in color, the special effects would probably look terrible and it would certainly feel, I don't think it would feel as scary as it does or, you know, whole, or, or keep that, uh, mood. Um, it would feel like these... Equinox or something like that. <laughs> yeah, you know? it totally would. I think <laughs> right, you would, right. you would see that budget much more in, with color film and, you know, the, and obviously they went on to go make color film zombie movies, but I feel like they had a better budget and better effects and, um, and, you know, change kind of the mood, the mood of it. This one still feels like that kind of ghost story that you would tell your kids about, you know, when the dead come to life at the end. It's, uh, it's just wonderful. I, I have like weird memories of watching this on TV as a kid. And so when I, you know, and that they're coming to get you Barbara line still is just something that I can remember, like, you know, joking with my brothers when we watched this movie about how cheesy that line was, but it still has like stuck with me, you know, 35 plus years later um, from whenever it was that I saw it. It's a pretty definitive edition. And like you say, it's been packaged in a lot of different ways over the years, but they really did go all out. I mean, this is not just a cash in, you know, by criterion. They really, I don't know that you could do a more, you know, authoritative, comprehensive uh, coverage of, of, of all the, you know, relevant artifacts, you know, maybe there's, there's other stuff out there, even in other editions. Um, I was, I was surprised I rewatched it, but what a kind of a feisty social political, you know, uh, attitude and, and commentary it it had. I I hadn't really remembered that piece of it. It's been a while since I watched it. I I had a, a similar memories of watching it on TV as a kid. And I don't know if it's, I think it's, this is a true childhood memory that my sister and I watched it. Then my parents, we were traveling somewhere and we visited a graveyard and then we got locked in. Like there was a closing gate and they, they locked the gate and we had to make some kind of calls to get somebody to let us out because we were just traveling around. But it, it was just a weird childhood sensation, like with all these ghoulish images in our, in our minds from watching it like the night before and now <laughs> we're wondering what's going to happen. But anyways, I digress, but yeah, I, I really, uh, there was, there's, there's something, it's not just, it's not just a fright fest, uh, you know, George, you know, with the, the black protagonist and just the, uh, the, the way the film ends, uh, sort of tragedy upon horror. And it's, it was, it was pretty remarkable. I, yeah, I'm not like a huge zombie horror fan, but, uh, I definitely have a lot of respect for this edition and also, uh, the, the obvious impact that that genre just has had on, on so many people for all these decades now. The uh, cover art is by Sean Phillips. He's a, a comic book illustrator who's done several works for Criterion. Um, I guess, you know, again, my only complaint with this release is that you get a poster inside to unfold to read the essay, um, which is just unfortunate and, you know, see our earlier conversation about this. Uh, but I think at least Criterion does put the essays on the website. That's true. So <laughs> yeah. You can read them there, which is how I read them because I don't want to break my booklets. I'm weird. <laughs> the uh, Sean Phillips also released, um, like he put out when this cover was finally announced that it, uh, he put out like a, a version without the text on it, and uh, 
I set it as I had it as my phone wallpaper for several months. Um, I just I think he did a, a great job um, with this with this artwork. All right, well, let's move along to round two. David, why don't you tell us about your second favorite release of the year? Yeah, sure. Oh, it's already come up in our conversation. I went with Susan uh, Seidelman's Smithereens and uh, really, really loved this film. I had not seen it, even though um, it was so far into my wheelhouse. It's just, it kind of pains me that I've gone decades of my life without having it (laughs) in my memory bank. But it was a very delightful discovery. I was originally um well i was a guest on aaron west's criterion now and i think the film that we had chosen to talk about kind of as a group because that's what we you know one of the ways he structures his shows is they'll talk about a relatively recent release and smithereens was the title that we had selected but we ended up going long on some other topics so i just kind of made it my uh you know kind of short take and so uh, but I had had such a wonderful response to this film. I guess I'll just briefly put it that, you know, I was in the punk rock scene in San Francisco in the early 1980s. Uh, and, and this this is kind of set in a similar type of scene, kind of a gritty, garage, punky uh, scene in New York City. And uh, even though she's a woman, Ren is a woman, I'm a guy, uh, there are so many analogs between experience that she that she has in this movie and my own personal life about the only one that jumps out at me that i haven't done is uh robbing somebody at gunpoint in the back of a taxi cab but uh i just really bonded so far so deeply with this film and the story of just this young woman who's just you know trying to make it in the band scene trying to uh get a little notoriety uh, you know the postering that she's doing at the beginning i mean i used to do that stuff we would have a we'd get a gig on a thursday night or a tuesday or something in some dive bar in san francisco and so we'd just go out and throw posters up on telephone poles thinking that that's somehow going to persuade people to come and see us you know uh but i just i just really love the energy and the uh the atmosphere and the attitude of this film i've watched it three times uh, since and it's just i i laugh i you know just i just really adore this film so this was a pretty easy number two pick for me just uh, again the sheer delight of the discovery and the uh you know echoes of my own story that i found in, in so much of what happens in this movie so as I mentioned earlier, I, I recently watched this movie for the first time and fell completely in love with it for m- many of the same reasons that uh, David uh, just mentioned. I, I mean, I, this movie is also, if you've ever listened to the two-part series David and I did on um, on Reality Bites and uh, Chunky oh, yeah. Plus, you would know that yep, this was yep. also way in my wheelhouse. <laughs> yeah. uh-huh. <laughs> and, uh, and I just, I completely fell for it. I, I think I saw Desperately Seizing, Seeking Susan a long time ago and didn't love it, but I would need to watch it again as a... Yeah, and I just thought of it as, as a Madonna vehicle. Which, yeah. I, I actually like Madonna, at least a, a lot of her music. I, I, I'm hip to that, but... Uh, I, I want to go back and revisit that again. Just, yeah. Like, after seeing this, like this film just completely knocked my socks off. Like I, I just so vital and alive and, and real and kind of depressing, but in like a kind of a way that I definitely relate to. And I mean, the, 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 the woman who played uh Ren, Susan Berman, as far as I can tell, this was the only thing she was ever in uh, of any sub substance. And it's, and she's incredible. And it's really a shame that she didn't get, uh, more roles. There's a great interview with her on the disc. 
And that's the other thing I wanted to draw attention to is that also on this disc are two of the student films that Susan Seidelman made at NYU. And I, I don't, I wouldn't say I love them, but they're both super interesting and you can see a lot of the style and, uh, and sort of the themes that she was working towards when she made this film. And I think they're very, very worth watching, especially, uh, uh yours truly, Andrea G. Stern, which is, uh, pretty depressing as well actually <laughs> but uh but i i just I, I love it this is definitely an incredible package and box in addition to being just a just a truly phenomenal film it's fascinating that this you know to look at the back of this package and see the shout factory logo on uh alongside janice films and to know that this is like they license this to criterion this company that has a huge home video uh, I mean, you know, this while they do some theatrical stuff, which is where they um, got this one to do like the repertory screenings of it, they, you know, the fact that they license this to Criterion just is like, it still seems so weird to me. Like I see that and I'm like, why didn't Shout Factory just release this themselves? What did Criterion have to do to convince, you know, Shout Factory to give up uh, a film like this that they had the rights to? It's just, it's like, you know, mind blowing in a way. Well, I wonder if director Seidelman, Susan Seidelman was involved because she is, you know, prominently interviewed and it is a director approved edition. So I wonder maybe she was, maybe she was part of that. Yeah. And with all respect, I mean, I, I don't know that I would have been drawn to this film quite as quickly uh, if it was just a Shout Factory release. Um, yeah, that's my own unique sort of criterion obsession coming through, I suppose. But, you know, the the feelies in the soundtrack and the other music, Richard Hell and, and his band, uh, I, there's probably a pretty good soundtrack album CD out there somewhere as well, which maybe, again, you know, with, uh, with the new wave punk rock music is a little bit more where Shout Factory got in the mix to begin with. But I think, you know, we also talk about some of the trends with criterion and Filmstruck and, and really... Uh, putting a very intentional focus on bringing more female directors uh, and more of a feminist sensibility to a lot of the films. Uh, this is a pretty clear example of that. It's a great development. I'm really supportive of what they're doing there. And uh, so that, that could be that criterion said, Hey, this is an important uh, voice that we want to get into the collection. Uh, I don't know if she's, if Susan Seidelman is still New York centric, but obviously they're all in the same neighborhood there if she is. And that may be another place where they made that connection and said, yeah, let's go ahead and give her a showcase here. On the topic of the soundtrack, uh, unfortunately there is not a soundtrack available oh, really? to purchase, but, but I found a playlist someone had made on Spotify oh, and I've okay. been listening to that soundtrack <laughs> <laughs> playlist yeah, like yeah. nonstop at work. So just like different album week. cuts that they put together. From, it's a lot of feelings yeah. stuff. Uh -huh, yeah. And some uh -huh. other stuff. I, I don't think it has everything that was in the movie, but oh my God, that's another thing about this film. The soundtrack is so good. Yeah. And it's just so cool. I mean, I just love those little bar scenes. I mean, I, again, it's just so incredibly reminiscent of the same experiences and places I used to hang out. Uh, you know, I'm on the guest list, all, just all that stuff, you know, very, uh, I just was grinning ear to ear, just watching this movie the, all the way through living in cheap vans and kind of scrounging your living, uh, in the city that's way beyond your, your income level, but you're going to somehow grind it out anyways. I've just, yeah, I've lived it. So it's cool. The commentary that Settlement has on there is, is really great, and she does talk about the musical choices, obviously, and discovering the feelies, and you know, finding that gu guitar riff that she ends up using is like Ren's theme. Um, 
if you guys haven't listened to that, you'll really like it. I have to uh, give a shout out to Josh, who wrote a review of this movie way back in July of 2016, when uh, it was playing at the Metrograph through Shout Factory. And uh, he loved the film as well. And uh, I'll try to put a link in the show notes, um, but it's pretty easy to find on our website. All right. Um, So I'm going to go, I'm going to switch up the order just a little bit so that we can talk about Jordan's second pick, a pick that we've already begun a discussion of earlier, um, but we can continue it here. Uh, Jordan, what is your second pick? Well, should I then not mention it for a little while? Should I just start talking? (laughs) See how long it takes people to figure out what we're talking about. (laughs) Uh, Gold leaf. (laughs) Uh, So I'm taking us back to Andre Rublev. Um, I think last year my second pick was Stalker, so I think I'm just obligated to put Tarkovsky in this slot. Um, But this film is just incredible. Um, You know, if if Ball is successfully, you know, a film about a poet that is also a poem, like this is a film about a painter that is also a painting, uh, and it just, you know, it just really beautifully addresses, like, the themes of, you know, the price of denying your own talent, you know, and, and how does one lose faith in themselves and to what extent, you know, can that then become this domino effect where, you know, Andre, who's this, you know, icon painter who everybody talks about how talented he is, he, he stops seeing the use of his talent, so he stops using it. And then he takes a vow of silence and he's not even speaking and, and then that's juxtaposed against this, you know, this incredible scene of, of casting a bell and the, the construction of that bell would then serve, you know, thematically to solve these other issues. Um, it's, it's just really beautifully constructed. And that bell sequence all by itself is so thrilling and reminds me now, when I first saw Andre Rublev, I hadn't seen There Will Be Blood. And now when I watch it, I just think, man, PTA must have, like, somewhere in his mind been thinking about the way this was staged. and you know, that the hole in the earth and the, and the flame and, you know, this, this character, I forget the young man's name. I mean, he's like a young Daniel Plainview. Um, and Mm -hmm. you know, that, um, it's just, it's just a sprawling historical journey that doesn't feel like history. You know what I mean? Like it, it feels otherworldly without feeling foreign. Like it doesn't rely upon, um, I think a lot of films that want to set their their world in a certain time period, they exaggerate human behavior in order to like provide those clues that, hey, we're not in the present. And smarter filmmakers like Tarkovsky and like PTA say, no, these, these are just people. So maybe the tools, you know, that they have available are different, but their human behavior isn't going to change. Um, the new transfer is extraordinary. That alone, you know, would, would put it here on my list. Uh, Tarkovsky's, you know, obviously one of my favorite filmmakers. So, yeah, this is this is a stellar release, and it's packed. Although I haven't really dived into the the supplements. Have you watched both versions, uh, the long and the short, so to speak? Short, well, the long and the very very me. long. <laughs> yeah, right. Was the transfer on the DVD? Which version was that? Oh, the transfer on the DVD was garbage. <laughs> well, I know, but which cut was it? It was, it was the long, the full 205-minute yeah, okay. cut. And then I think the high-def, uh, the, the restoration transfer is the shorter one. It's the edited-down version. Yeah, It's the one where yeah. when, the, when the juggler guy does his little handstand, his, you don't see his bare ass after his pants fall down. So, um, you know, that's that, they've, they've made a few cuts and, and the... 
slightly censored version, which, you know, there's the debate whether that was Tarkovsky's truly preferred cut, as he said, possibly under some duress, uh, you know, a little less animal cruelty and violence and stuff of that sort. Uh, both both versions are, are pretty stunning and pretty epic, but I just wondered if you'd gotten through all, uh, you know, six hours or whatever of just the main feature there. No, I haven't seen the longer cut. But I'm excited to know that, like, at 205 minutes, there's extended ass sequences included. <laughs> <that> guy. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, it is it is such a treat to know that there is this, you know, worthwhile version out there now. I mean, this has been, you know, for when we were doing the annual Blu-ray upgrade wish list episodes, this was always kind of right there, whether it was specifically named by somebody or just everybody understood. This is this is like at the top of the list because it's such an epic film and yet the DVD was so so inadequate, right? Like it would rotate between people's lists every year and, and then like you didn't want to say it again or or it was like right. understood. We'll let somebody <laughs> else go with it. Yeah. <laughs> and then eventually we were like, okay, well, we can't really do this podcast anymore because we've essentially like listed every title that we want upgraded. <laughs> and uh, and then we would just keep like making the same joke about how Andre Rublev like needs to be restored. And then there was like the, the UK edition from Artificial Eye where it was... You know, it was there was a Blu-ray, but no one was quite sure. Like, is this like the definitive edition of it? Like, is this really what we should all buy? And you know, I bought one, but then uh, everyone was still kind of holding out the hope that Criterion would put put this out in this package, and it was like clearly worth the wait. How does it compare to that earlier one? Well, the earlier one was not anamorphic. So no, no, not the Criterion oh, one. I I had oh, that. That was okay, trash. Okay. I'm talking about the one uh, Ryan. The artificial eye one. I think it. Uh, it's not both cuts, I don't think. Although, like, now I'm totally drawing a blank on the special, uh, like, features. Sorry included to put on you it. on the spot. Um, no, it's fine. Um, I'm gonna have to. I'll I'll bring it up while we talk. But uh, I don't know off the top of my head, and I and I, uh, f- I forget to have gone back and and checked uh, about it. But I will right now while we're talking. It's interesting to, to think about like Criterion's plans with Tarkovsky, and you know how they're reissuing um, films like this, and. Um, you know, whether or not there will be one day like a collected version. I mean, artificial, I did do that release, um, where they put all the, the Blu-rays together into one box and it, you know, it feels like a, a manageable amount of films that, that Tarkovsky made throughout the course of his career. Um, and I wonder if they will ever go back and take these discs out and put them, uh, into some kind of beautiful, you know, artifact, uh, of all of his work. That'd be great. I mean, I guess they'd have to license the other two from Kino. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I mean, it's, it yeah. wouldn't be easy. Um, but, you know, like, I'm sure it wasn't easy getting all the films together for Ingmar Bergman. So I think like they've set now this at the standard saying, like, look, we can, you know, maybe there's not everything. I guess like maybe that's not the greatest example because there is a, still a film not included in there. That's, you know, from Olive. But uh, they did a pretty amazing job of getting the rights to all those films. Yeah, they're complaining on the forum all the time about films that are not included in that box set. But I think everyone understands that it was, you know, obviously a phenomenal achievement. It is helpful that in the Bergman case, most of his films were with the same company, right? Svensk Film Industry. Mm-hmm. And it's another advantage of the curated film orders that it it already says like this collection has been put together. It's not comprehensive. So the uh, Artificial Eye Blu-ray was the shorter cut of the film, so that it didn't include uh, the longer one. Um, and I think that the framing is a little bit 
slightly different in the Criterion one versus the Artificial Eye one, but um, this one is obviously like the superior one, better grain, better, you know, blacks and, and depth in, in the image. All right, well, Arik, <laughs> you and I have chosen the same film as our second favorite release of the year. Inconceivable, I say. <laughs> <laughs> I think you do know what that word means. <laughs> the thing about that. Uh, yeah, I mean, as I wrote, just uh i think yesterday on my site um this is just the a perfect movie and of course i'm talking about the princess bride uh a film i have been watching since i was so long so young that i don't actually remember seeing it for the first time um i i did we definitely had like a, a vhs copy that that it's kind of funny actually like when you when you have i guess this is something that the kids growing up now won't experience but when you had those kind of things like there were specific parts edited out of the version <laughs> oh, that i saw oh, yeah. and i saw it nine thousand times so when i first saw the full thing on like a dvd i bought you know maybe god 20 years ago now uh i was like what the heck i didn't even know these scenes existed <laughs> like and even now i kind of know that i haven't seen those scenes quite as many times i feel was like that, that um, commercial release that was edited or was this like a home video my parent no my parents taped it off of tv yeah. oh okay okay yeah this was back in the day we had like i remember it was on the same tape as like raiders of the lost ark and, <laughs> and something else anyway um uh, you know uh, princess bride I, I you know for for years it was a Criterion Laserdisc title, and for years it was like they said that they would only put out a Blu-ray if they felt like they could do something new or useful in doing so. And and in my opinion, and having owned one of those previous DVDs, they absolutely did. This is such a incredible, incredible treasure to have. The packaging, first of all, is stunning. I mean, if this was a, any other year without the Ingmar Bergman set, this would probably be my number one packaging of the year. I mean, it it, it really they they. The, the cloth bound book aspect of it is, is so just so wonderful and, uh, and all of the special features and everything else. And on top of that, it, it, it's, it, we just have one of the greatest, in my opinion, one of my, the greatest films ever made. Like I know it's it just, it's perfect. Like I, I really think this film is perfect. It, it, I've met one, I know one person who doesn't like it and I really think he's dead inside. So, <laughs> <laughs> and there's other evidence of that for him, but I just, you know, I, I it's just, it's just the perfect movie, and uh, and and I watched it. You know, getting to watch it with my my wife, who had never really seen the whole thing, and having her fall for it, and then the knowledge that I'll get to show it to kids, my kids or my niece or whoever in the future, is just like making me so happy. I love this movie. Yeah, I uh, totally agree. I mean, the the theme I think going through my three choices tonight is going to be just like like films that I already own that I'm willing to repurchase or that I would champion everyone to repurchase in the, in Criterion's new edition. I mean, I think it's like what they do, you know, Criterion will like bring out a new film of a release that maybe people know of, but haven't seen in a long time. And then every once in a while, they'll do these releases where it's like a film that everyone knows everyone has seen, uh, but they needed to put their wacky C stamp on the cover art and have it be a part of their collection. Um, and deservedly so with this one, I totally agree. I have like many of the same emotions as you is like, this is a movie that I also don't remember when I first saw it, but that I was just like, I had always seen it. Like it was a movie that, you know, like I knew by heart, I knew all the lines, even if it, I didn't really know the lines because I couldn't understand what Andre the Giant was saying. Uh, <laughs> that was really helpful. With the subtitles. <laughs> the subtitles. I mean, it's like, I, 
I, it's like, and that, and that is like so amazing to me is that I, I was watching this movie and I was, had the subtitles on and I was like, I, I really need to pay attention to what he's saying right here because it's like, it's so fascinating to hear and think about his dialogue when you actually know what he's saying. Um, and you know, people have, have told me that this is, I haven't read the book, but it's like, you know, th- there's a deeper history of his character in the book that you kind of get in pieces, uh, when you know what he's saying in, uh, the story, but he's also just so incredibly funny and like lovable, this, this, this giant, um, just amazing. Everyone in this movie is incredible. Like all the performances I still know by heart. And I feel like it, it doesn't, it's not one of those movies that like, you know, you look back on and think like, Oh, well that's just a kid's movie. Like it still feels smart. It feels well written. And, um, I mean, obviously like it's coming from good stock and when William Goldman, if, if you're going to release, if you're going to do a new edition of the princess bride, a movie that gets anniversary editions done almost every year. It feels like, like the studios are going to continuously put this movie out because they can stick it at every home video store at every target or Walmart and know that this movie will continuously sell uh, over the years. Like why would criterion take something like that on? Like why would they pay for the rights to, you know, put this movie together and and all the time and effort that went into the creating the packaging and the supplements and everything like what you know is it just because they had it on laserdisc well no it's because this movie is a good movie that uh deserves to be kind of treasured in the way that they present movies to be treasured and it's also a movie that I can't wait to show. I, I haven't shown Miranda, but it's definitely a movie that we are ta- oh. talking a lot about watching with her. And I kind of wanted yeah. to watch it again recently just to see, like, is there anything in here that I should be prepared for? And, like, no. you know, th- as a kid, like, I was always, like, more scared of, like, the, the violence uh, that are, that's in this movie or, like, you know, when he's attacked by the 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 rodent of an unusual size um that little that part in the movie always scared me when i was a kid um but yeah it's just uh it's so wonderful and the interviews on here um with carrie elways and um and robin wright and uh and and rob reiner they uh they're great it's fun to hear them kind of reminiscing on the film um the the commentary track and then along with that the 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 reading of bits of the audiobook from Rob Reiner um really special um it's uh and then like you're saying like the illustrations that they came up with uh for this one hiring on um the woman who they did a video with uh Angela Ritza Ritza they um uh, she just came up with a whole new style like I've seen so many copies of this book at my bookstore and um she really managed to come up with like a unique um but also like appropriate uh design a look for all the characters and she just really infuses it with like a i don't know like a a beautiful fantasy uh style i think yeah i mean it looks like the wood cutting you know, like block wood block cutting look. It's I, or like uh, the the way you do that with you with the ink. It's it's so unbelievably beautiful. Miranda is going to be obsessed with this movie. <laughs> yeah, she sees it. Uh, totally. Oh my goodness, I can't wait. I, I can't wait. I guess uh, in continuing with my slight complaints about things, um, 
I can't let us pass this by without bringing it up. Um, but the the whole controversy surrounding the glue that they used on the back <laughs> with uh, the slip yes, of uh, yes. the, the back cover thing that tells you the supplements before you unwrap it. Um, you know, I've seen some pretty horrifying uh, images from people where they went to peel that off and took along a piece of the As You no. Wish ink uh, on the back. No. <laughs> and uh, Really? I've, oh, Have I, you not oh, seen God, any of those? Oh, God, I'm glad posts? I didn't know that. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, Lord. Yeah. Well, it, it's kind of like high-end, like, baseball cards, you know, like there's going to be a market for like how mint condition can you have the <laughs> book because like mine uh the, the gold foil on uh the left half of the u and the uh, the right side of the h is kind of faded because when you peel that little blob off it it like i say it sort of removes some of the oh uh, no the, the, the ink there so it's a little besmirched i mean i i'm not that meticulous my my, my video my my discs get watched you know the cases get banged around yeah your shelf same here. and i'm okay with that uh yeah. this is just this this one this is one that makes it mine you know everybody is just going to have a little variation but there are a few people who have gotten lucky they they won the lotto where they uh they peeled the glue off and it, it was glued off to the side or it just didn't happen to take any ink maybe maybe if you bought it and you peeled it off too soon you know then uh <laughs> there was there was a more likelihood for damage maybe if it let it sit in the shelf for a couple of years and then you peel it up <laughs> <laughs> well, i'm gonna have to look at mine now i don't remember anything coming yeah. up and i feel like that's something i would have noticed i am also someone who does not believe that you keep these things as pristine as possible because if i see someone's book or movie or whatever at their house and it's completely pristine my assumption is they've never watched or read it uh and that's so sad to me so yeah i i absolutely believe you you live with it and if if, if eventually it looks like it's been chewed by a dog well that just means that i've loved it but <laughs> yeah but, yeah. but having I, said but that I, <laughs> I mean they could have been a little bit more careful with yeah it. for I sure mean, you know there's a lot of places they uh, the, the wrapper kind of fills the whole back cover or at least enough of it they could have put the glue at the top or the bottom or something and it would have stayed in place they or just not glued it on there because it's yeah. in packet plastic packaging anyway exactly just a, just a thought mm-hmm do you have more to say about that, Ryan? I mean, <laughs> no. Right, you can't you can't let it go. You know, it's it's got to be mentioned. I mean, my copy. I feel like I I did pretty well with it not getting any of the ink removed. But I mean, seeing the pictures that I think like Michael Hutchins posted and and some of the other people on the groups, like those were. It, I feel I really felt bad that this is how like their copy is now going to look with that stuff peeled off. Cause it is such a nice um, design and, and to see that it's just removed because of like a faulty design. It's just felt like, you know, like I know, I knew, you know, criterion has done this before with, with the releases like moonrise kingdom um, or some of the other ones that, you know, wrap around like where the image wraps around and it's a digipack. Um, but it's just uh, really unfortunate. Yeah, that is unfortunate. But I want to make that. I, I know I said, you know, people haven't watched it, but I totally get when you first get something and you open it up and you don't want it to be immediately damaged for no There's reason. There's a flaw yeah. right off the game. Yeah, there. exactly. Yeah. yeah. No, I'm looking through all the little supplements here. Wallace Shawn was apparently not really involved with any of the extras on this release, which is kind of interesting. I mean, since he's actually got a fairly prominent <laughs> little, uh, you know, niche within the collection there, he's got his own box set for for pete's sake uh I, you know i don't know what what else is wallace sean in like how much of a percentage of his feature filmography is in the cartier collection now i wonder 
Yeah. Oh no, he's been in a lot, a lot of stuff. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Stuff. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I. That is. It is interesting. Like why he's not more involved with it. Like I. I guess I don't really know his thoughts on his legacy with this. Like I don't know if this is something that he looks back on and kind of is like, oh, why did I do that? Or why does everyone only remember Inconceivable as like that's my that's my legacy yeah. is Inconceivable. Like you know. Um, and so I, I guess I could see people wanting to like distance yourself from it. But then this is the guy who also plays, you know, Ferengi on Deep Space Nine. Like he and or, or does like kids cartoon show voices uh, all the time. So, I mean, he, he must have an idea of like who he is in in popular culture. This is the second film, as far as I can tell, in the collection that he's in that isn't a Wallace Shawn film. Right. Like we have the, the films he did with. Uh, with Andre Gregory, but we also have this one and uh, All That Jazz, which he was also a, a minor, more minor character in. He's a tremendous playwright, so I wouldn't be surprised if maybe he would just be much more interested in taking the time to talk about, you know, something that he'd written, because his writing is really, people that write like that, that's kind of where their heart usually is. This was just a, a gig, you know, so, uh, you know, I'm sure he had fun with it. He's probably got some fond memories, but not really needing to be uh, all up in on this project. Yeah. Okay. All right, let's move on to the third and final round uh, of our choices for tonight. David, what is your all right. favorite pick of the year? Well, you know, I kind of going a little bit more on the nostalgic side with this one here. Um, this coming January, which is like we're just a week away now, um, is going to be the 10th anniversary of my Criterion Reflections blogging project where I you know, started this whole chronological sequence and all of that. And it just has gotten me thinking about all the blogging and podcasting and stuff I've done and a 10-year benchmark is a chance to kind of look back and say, well, what got me started with this in the first place? And I might even do a little standalone episode uh, that I'll put out there sometime right after the new year to commemorate the occasion. But I just got to thinking back of my earliest days of really getting serious about the Criterion Collection. And I've already kind of talked about, you know, the, the whole experience of just picking up a DVD off the shelf and reading it over and saying, oh, this looks interesting. I wonder what that's like, what it's about and all of that. And uh, the, the one I've chosen just sort of is the one that brought me back to that kind of what I'll consider kind of the golden age of criterion, kind of those early 2000s, early to mid 2000s, where you would get, like I said, the the double disc, the big brick there, disc one, disc two, nice fat booklet inside. And, and uh, even though this one doesn't have the fat booklet, uh, A Matter of Life and Death, a Powell and Pressburger film, just really feels like it kind of fits that niche of where I've originally bonded with the Criterion Collection with, you know, with those kind of what are like now tentpole type releases, the great films of Renoir, Fellini, Kurosawa, Ozu, uh, Bergman, obviously, and and the Archers, Powell and Pressburger were a pretty big piece of that uh, early enchantment that I felt, you know, discovering things like uh, The Red Shoes, Black Narcissus, uh, uh, Canterbury Tale, and, and, you know, several others, you know, 49th Parallel, I know where I'm going. Uh, a matter of life and death has sort of always stood out as like a big missing piece that that uh, for whatever reason just had not been released, uh, and I had not had a chance to see it until somewhat before the the disc came out. I think it was streaming on Filmstruck, so I watched it there. 
and was really delighted with the film and definitely lived up to expectations. Uh, the, the, the disc release just took it to another level because the restoration is, is so gorgeous and so beautiful. And this is such an interesting, innovative film for its time. Uh, you know, the alternating scenes, it's, it's a story about life after death and, and a guy who's, kind of given an extra chance to live when his number should have been up there's a war story it's a romance there's some metaphysical elements to it there's even this cool little sort of astrophysical primer at the very beginning uh where they're talking about the universe and uh, the you know the galaxies and the solar system and this is you know i, I think about you know where astronomy even was just beginning to sort of come more into the public consciousness with more discoveries of what space might be like and and all of that and there's just this just, just so many wonderful elements to this film that I, again i watched it again today just to make sure my i was right in my pick that this was my favorite release of the year and you know again bergman box set aside which you know kind of steamrolls over everything else but i i just really love this film and it, it still puzzles me why this one fell so far to the end of the queue in terms of getting Powell and Pressburger movies. Maybe it's a restoration thing. Maybe it's rights or whatever. But uh, this is right there at the very tippy top of my, uh, you know, tiered list. And I really, all the classic period Archer stuff, uh, Life and Death of Colonel Blimp, another big one that should have been mentioned at, at the upper level there. So, um, you know, those, those films, like I say, all came out really in those kind of right at the end of the, the line era if you will right right around the time of the wacky sea a few others came out after that of course a lot of those earlier ones were upgraded but this to me is just a real wonderful masterpiece uh, great performances uh, by david niven and kim hunter great quirky character actors uh you know just just a really delightful story and a film that i know i'll watch you know many more times in the months and years ahead as we get with other Paul and pressburger stuff it's always nice to have martin scorsese on the the supplements mm-hmm. um just because mm-hmm. he obviously loves them so much and the films that they made and you see him you know appear on the red shoes uh, supplements or black narcissus um and to have him back here have to have a restoration demonstration um those are the you know the supplements that really like i feel like stick with me when i watch them i wish more releases would do restoration demonstrations i feel like that was something that criterion did a lot in the early days and i love them and they just don't do them that much anymore yeah i i, I don't know if it's like is it a is it a, maybe they don't have like a great uh, demonstration like of you know like really bad elements or if it's like the time involved with producing that but I agree I think they should do more of those the Philadelphia story has a pretty good one because there's a really interesting story behind that there's like and it's another one that Peter Becker told me because he was pretty excited about that that was before that he had actually released it but they found one like solid nitrate print that they wanted to use but there had been some warping that had happened with that particular uh, negative but you know there were other, there are many other copies of the film around so there's a pretty good supplement on that particular release i'll just throw that out there as a relatively recent example of that so maybe it's just they have to wait until they've got a compelling enough story i mean there's a lot of 
banged up films that they just kind of clean up and it's just kind of mundane but uh when there's there's some unique circumstances the the one good print or just the technical challenge because this is a film that you know not only has black and white and color sequences but there's scenes that that kind of transition from color into black and white or vice versa so you've got a real interesting challenge as you're doing the the grading there because you know it's it's not just a quick cut one or the other it's it's a slow fading transition to make that scene come off just right and you've already got three strips of color so mm-hmm. yeah that sounds mm-hmm. insane yeah i would say my one regret about the physical release is the cover and i wonder if you feel the same way david because you did pick my man godfrey and these are not the type mm-hmm. of covers that i'm drawn to and in this particular case like yeah it's it's three strip technicolor it's also got some incredible matte painting yeah oh yeah yeah. you know the sequence you mentioned that that really great you know scene out in outer space it looks fantastic Mm -hmm. (laughs) so when i when i see what they've settled on i guess this is efron miller who's done some covers that i do like um i feel like they kind of maybe missed an opportunity to sort of just utilize what the film achieves better i see the cover as being done by laura smith oh my I don't know. I don't know who's right or wrong. I'm just, that's what's on the website. That's what's on, it's, I that's what's in the booklet too. But he, I, well, oh, like okay. they're both listed. So like Efron Miller did, I think some of the layout for it and maybe like the text and then, ah, gotcha. um, and then, uh, the, the painting okay. was, um, uh, by, uh, oh wait, she's Laura not, Smith. she's not listed in the, uh, I'm looking at, I have like the website and then I also have the booklet <laughs> and, uh, a controversy. Yeah. So I see what you're talking. So I see why, where the, the mistake or the confusion is because yeah, like in the book, in the booklet, um, the little fold out essay, it just says Efron Miller designer and they don't list, um, Laura Smith who they do list on the website. Uh, interesting well yeah so i think he must have like done the the, like the text and then um she did the actual like illustration i will say whoever did it they failed (laughs) (laughs) that's the important part right well when you think about um you know how these uh we were talking earlier about you know films by the same directors kind of have similar designs this one does not feel like it's of a piece with the red shoes or black narcissus or colonel blimp where they're they're using iconic images from those films as part of the cover this is an a full illustration and you know not all the powell and pressburger films you know some of them are are just you know graphic designs not not really utilizing images from the film so there are some really beautiful shots even even the shot of of david niven and kim hunter that's kind of the cover that you open up of the insert i mean maybe something like that could have been totally. pretty appealing and maybe not the full face uh, taking up the full cover but using because to me you know you, you're not really picking up the romance angle here and and her her contributions the radio operator that he falls in love with is as plain as hurtling to its doom i mean it's really a film it's about them it's not just about this guy you know uh on the stairway to heaven there so i I like the stairway to heaven motif i like the colors that that's pretty engaging um but yeah yeah pointing up at this rose it's yeah i I get it but i think there were definitely other themes or motifs they could have gone with and i think uh the radio operator uh she deserved a representation on the cover image as well the uh 
looking at all of the covers for the Powell and Pressburger stuff, I mean, this one, so like the Red Shoes and Black Narcissus both feel like a pair of films. This one does kind of pair nicely with the life and death of Colonel Blimp, I think, like mm-hmm. just the the way that if you were to put them next to one another, they would feel like um, part of a pair. But um, it's interesting, though, like the, that life and death of Colonel Blimp was a Fred Davis illustration, and then um, they went with someone else for this one. All right. Well, David, or, uh, thank you so much for your choice tonight. Arik, why don't we move on to your next pick, your favorite release of the year? My favorite release of the year. Yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's a, I guess, I think this was a re-release, not a reissue. I don't know. I always get confused on which one. I believe this was a re-release. Re, re, a new release. This is, a re-release. So this is a reissue, and re-issue. a reissue involves new supplements, new cover art, the up, right. the upgrades are what are just straight. They are, they're like, a, they, they match the DVD release in, the, but they're, you know, high definition. Thank you so much. So this uh, film I chose is the, uh, 1928 Carl Dreyer film, the passion of Joan of Arc. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, 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 I have been I've been a huge fan of all the Dreyer films I've seen in the collection to date, and uh, for whatever reason I had had never watched this one, and I'm I'm really glad I didn't because the uh, DVD which I had I think was famously not great. Um, but recently I was listening to a a, a really great history podcast uh, that I will recommend to everyone out there uh, called History on Fire, and the guy was doing a four part series on Joan of Arc, and I thought, oh, I, I now that I've heard some of the story, I kind of want to you know check check something else out, and so I decided to to to, to watch this and i was just completely destroyed by it i I mean that you know they say that 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 the uh the actor the actress who plays joan of arc uh, renee falconetti might have given the greatest performance in cinema history and i'm i'm kind of on board with what they're saying i mean this film is so it's a um it's a like 80 minute long version of the trial that Joan of Arc went through when she was finally captured by the uh, French representatives of the British during the hundred years war. And um, they use as the dialogue, the uh, actual trial transcripts that exist, that still exist from the, from that time. And so all of the dialogue are, is basically taken directly from the actual uh, trial, which is crazy. And then the entire thing is done in like these super, uh, close-ups like it's basically just someone's face at all times which I mean you hear silent film uh, close-ups of people's faces this is going to be so awful and it's it's just it's I mean it, it's just astounding it's so powerful and so beautiful and 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 just completely completely blew me away to the point where uh, I actually watched the so the 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 package with the the criterion release is all equally as amazing and it comes with three versions of the film two at 24 frames per second and one at 20 frames per second with a really great supplemental about why there's some debate over what the frame rate should be uh, and i watched all three of those versions within two days hmm. i just i just watched the entire thing i was just completely i couldn't get enough uh i i I just found this to be so affecting and so, you know, and, and I, I think, 
I, I don't think uh, anyone who's read my work on my site will know that uh, books that have to do with uh, sort of, or films that have to do with sort of Christian themes uh, don't tend to resonate strongly with me. Uh, and, uh, but this one, I mean, I just, just could not get enough. And I, I uh, uh, for the record, I think that the Richard Einhorn uh, Voices of Light theme is my actually my favorite. Uh, I know a lot of people like the um Mia Yanashita, the the 20 frames per second Japanese pianist, but uh for me the the I think it's from the 80s, but the the Voices of Light theme is is just perfect for the film and I I I just strongly recommend that everyone go out and watch this and I, I also think the cover uh, especially compared to the old one is so perfect and beautiful and kind of like to your point, uh, Ryan from before about like how they did something interesting with the lettering on the side of the Schlondor film, like having the, just the sort of black bo- thing at the bottom with the text there. I, I, I know some people don't like it. I love it. Uh, the, the entire thing. I just, I, this, this package to me is the epitome of why the criterion collection is so vital and so wonderful. And I, I just, I, I love it. So this film uh i have, I have uh, several thoughts uh that i want to share on, with about this film but um first this was episode number three uh of the podcast this was wow. <laughs> we we talked about this film in august of 2009 i mean this was like this was this is early i don't recommend anyone go back and listen to any of those old episodes <laughs> but man it is so much fun to think back to this i mean yeah. this was you know i think travis's first pick of you know like when we first started doing the podcast we were we, we would like go around and like we would each pick a film uh and this was his first choice and i just remember watching this movie several times uh before we talked about it um i i would recommend i mean i know you can't like change your first viewing of it but i feel like the the old criterion edition i mean the new one is beautiful and the fact that we get these three different editions of it you know at different frame rates with all these different scores like there's something special i think about that old criterion dvd when you see it in its like poor condition and know that this movie, I, I, I forget, what is, is it that the film was like discovered in an insane asylum? Is that where they yeah, found the it was, copy? It was a, it was a, it was a, you know, a, a, a mental health ward, you know, some kind of in a storage area. Like the film had been censored and there had been, you know, there had been sort of a, a remnants that had been preserved. Obviously, you know, uh, Anna Karina watches it in Vive Savi, the early Godard film. So she's watching a version of The Passion of Joan of Arc, but it wasn't discovered until like uh, was it late 70s or early 80s. But it was just found in a closet somewhere. And it was truly like this almost supernatural miracle type of thing. It's just like this amazing discovery for a, a film that was widely regarded as a lost legendary masterpiece, almost along the lines of like a magnificent ambersons type of thing like wouldn't know there was no hope that it would be found and yet here it was so that is pretty much the transfer that we get in that original dvd so i'm keeping my old version of it because you're right i have a sort of a fondness for that old banged up relic as well and that was very early on in my own podcasting journey from a what 1927 film or whenever that was released very very early in the sequence there so yeah definitely I will go back and watch that because I I do understand what you're. I feel like I understand what you're saying, and I think there is some something there because the 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 restoration on this is really really great. It's gorgeous, really gorgeous. Yeah, but I do kind of want to see that that garbage that that uh not garbage that uh that um 
you know, that, that kind of scruffy lived through version and see, see kind of how that. Yeah. There's kind of a a fading on one of the edges because that's, that's just exactly what this, this print looks like. So, and it's kind of a weird kind of a, a pillory aspect ratio. It's like taller than it is wide or something like that. So, uh, but I, I really loved hearing your, your description there, Eric, your first encounter with this film that, you know, a lot of us have lived with for many years and it really is another excellent release just to see one of these venerable, you know, legendary masterpieces of the Criterion Collection, you know, finally get its, its, uh, state of the art due as a, as a, as a, as a release that, you know, people can watch now and say, wow, that's, that's, that's pretty mind blowing, pretty incredible, uh, early piece of cinema. I feel like this is one of the releases that in my mind just makes this, you know, the most exemplary year in, in my memory that have a film like this into the collection, uh, with this, with this kind of resolution is just incredible. Um, I have a couple of questions. Was that original release, um, without a soundtrack? Because I know the first time I saw this, I saw it totally silently. And I actually prefer it that way. Um, I, I do like the Voices of Light um, soundtrack that you mentioned, Arik. I, I like the Porous Head soundtrack quite a bit. But I kind of prefer it totally silent. And I'm wondering if that first disc had it that way. No, the Voices of Light was on the first disc. And it also had the libretto packaged inside. So that's another reason to get that old DVD. Because I don't think you get the, the full libretto uh, printed in the new version here. And I also wanted to ask you, David, if you knew more about why it was discovered in an insane asylum. I mean, is this like a cautionary tale? I, 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 I think it was just honestly, I don't think there's a real clear understanding of how it got there. But it was in Norway, you know, close by Denmark, where, where Dreyer filmed it. Um, but, you know, I, I don't have all the lore in front of me, but and maybe the liner notes have a little bit more. But I think it was very much just kind of a an unexpected stumbling upon us like, Oh, here's a film canister. What's in there? <laughs> it's Joan of Arc by Carl. And, and it was a very complete print, you know, like I say, and, and, and I guess the censorship was just because it was obviously not very flattering to religious authority. Um, and I think there was just, you know, wear and tear and, and, um, and, and, things that happened and and no preservation of the original negatives or any of that kind of thing so uh it 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 survived the ravages of time and now we've got a very beautiful definitive high def transfer that will you know keep it around for the the long haul i guess i just wonder if there were other films in that vault like was this was this like a cool film collection of this of which this is the most notorious discovery or was this somehow yeah. a prized possession being used somehow for edification or just a personal possession? It feels like that when they find new copies of Metropolis or like, uh, mm-hmm. you know, some of those like older German films like that, that uh, you know, have been hiding away that they, that some collector, you know, had kept and maybe forgotten about. Um, so the libretto is included in the new booklet, um, for anyone who's curious. Um, and I feel like I can't remember this story now, but I did, did Dreyer make like two different versions of the film? Like he made, uh, a French version and, a um, and like, a, 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 a the, 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 the subtitles on the Danish. 20 frames per second one are Danish. Yeah. yeah. 
uh, uh, and I don't I don't know that it was like as much of different versions as it was with Vampire. Yeah. Uh, I think they were more like I, I don't believe the text is different or anything like that. Yeah, this is an incredible release. I mean, it, when uh, Masters of Cinema uh, several years ago, they put together um, a pretty impressive like steelbook multi version edition, kind of like this with the different uh, frame rates. But um, I think the restoration that Gamont did for um, the film is is better in these ones than it is in the masters of cinema one um although it's nice to have both for i think the the different supplements that are included in it but um this is a worthy you know reissue in that it's you know like you're saying there's all these different ones one i got uh, the first year that we covered south by southwest as a the website um, i went down there and amazingly there was a screening of passion of joan of arc um in south by southwest with a live with live music uh i forget who did the the actual um music there but it was an incredible experience to be like at this film festival uh where we had just started out as being you know like these fans of the criterion collection i think i had met peter becker that year at south by southwest and then i was able to see passion of joan of arc like on the big screen at one of the draft house theaters with the live score it was just like an amazing experience that really sounds absolutely incredible all right, well, let's move on. Unless anyone else has anything they want to add to Passion of Joan of Arc, we can move on to uh, Jordan and my picks. Uh, once again, Jordan, we have very similar taste, and uh, we have both chosen the incredible release that Criterion has put together of Terrence Malick's The Tree of Life. It's my favorite film of all time, so this was kind of a no-brainer for me. Um, did you want to say some words yeah, about it? Uh, sure. I mean, right? yeah, definitely. This so like like you, I think this is this. My, I think that I'm I've, I I waffle a little bit on this, but I'm pretty sure this is my favorite Terrence Malick movie. Although, like, I have such a soft spot for Thin Red Line, and like when I saw it, and it, I think it still holds up like just so well. Um, but Tree of Life is just you know this this near masterpiece. I think from from a master director who is able to just weave together like images and poetry and, and these performances, um, in a way. And, you know, by incorporating like this amazing team of people, like when you say that it's like a Terrence Malick movie, it doesn't really even do justice to how good this movie is because of all the different people who are involved with it, the cinematography, the music that is chosen for it, much of which, you know, was from Malick, but like it, it all weaves together in this amazing, um, work of art that I think is just, um, incredible to to watch and and rewatch and now that we have the opportunity with this release to watch a longer cut of it to see extended scenes and and criterion really produced a, a whole nother film as they mentioned in some of the press re, uh, lead up to the release of the film and i think they showed it theatrically um last year when it was um, announced i mean this is a movie that we all kind of assumed was going to get a criterion release at some point and we've waited many years to get to this point um but it was obviously worth the wait i mean the the transfer looks amazing like and then to create and like really refine that longer cut um is something special uh the just like is, is also this is another film that i feel like you know in, in the themes of like criterion making something worth rebuying you know this kind of fits in with the princess bride and night of the living dead in that like you know this is a new movie that already has a really good blu-ray um even if it's just you know like 
like one documentary that's on, on that one, it still looks good. And so you don't necessarily need to buy this one to see it look look better, but you're getting it because of the supplements and you're getting it because of the, the extra cut of the film and they're making some, they're making it, um, you know, worth, worth owning again, even if you already own the other one. Um, you can add breakfast club to that list. Yeah, too, I think. absolutely. I think I would, I mean, the breakfast club is one of the, one of like my fondest memories of this past year of watching criterion films is because that one was one that I, when they announced it or when it was even like just rumored, like, Oh, they're going to do the breakfast club or maybe, you know, 16 candles or whatever. Like, I was like, why, why are they doing this? I don't, I don't want to go back and rewatch the breakfast club, but I did. And man, that movie is so good. And that release is great. I loved watching all the, like sitting and watching all of the deleted material that they had included on that was just such a treat. Or speaking of Malik, the new world. Yeah. Or the new world. Absolutely. They, you know, yeah. the multi edition, uh, you know, releases on that one as well as creating this like beautiful package with amazing artwork. The tree of life. Also, I just have to say like, I have like a special place in my heart for this one just because of when it was released and how it came out like um you know we were following its production even though this movie has been in production for you know much longer than when it was first announced like malik has been kind of off and on working on this movie in his in, you know like in in pulling together the different people who were involved with it um but you know it's, it's had a very long production as many of his films do um but, you know, on the like being, you know, when we were first doing the podcast weekly, we would be talking about like any news story that was relevant to Criterion Collection directors and, um, and, and actors. And it was like we were able you could like go back through the history of this podcast, I feel like, and kind of track like the different production developments like as the movie you know like there was a poster that came out like when it was just first being kind of pitched to investors and there's you know like the trailers that were that had been released and well i i remember listening to those episodes ryan we talk about there's a, or you guys would talk about oh there's like a four-hour cut out there yeah. and stuff like that <laughs> yeah. yeah so you know the, the this the 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 legend if you will has been growing um you know well well before the film ever saw the light of day as far as public release so you're right this has been quite a, a sort of a, a circle of life a, a cycle that that uh, that this program has gone through of watching this thing develop get released uh, get released uh, on home media several different times and now comes around full circle to criterion it's pretty cool and it also, I just want to say, like, the, the fact that this movie came out in May of 2011, which was when Miranda was born, it was, like, such a, an emotional mm. part of my life. Mm -hmm. And to have this yeah. movie come out, like, as I'm watching, you know, uh, having just had Miranda, we, and, you know, like, watching all the, the, the trailers and poster images of, like, the baby's foot or, you know, like, all of the... the loving images of um you know the the mother children playing, uh, children playing yeah. family life it's but just, also the yeah. cosmic stuff too yeah, you know, the stars yeah, and the dinosaurs and the you know primitive life forms and just all this you know the jellyfish oozing across the screen it's just sure. like so many fantastic moments and feelings and sensations that come over you i was watching early watching through it again earlier today as well so just kind of had the day off just did a lot of cramming at the last minute and uh, this is when i definitely wanted to take a piece in uh, i watched some of andre ruplov as well just to kind of get these you know 
top shelf criterions right there in the freshness of my memory and it really is a very impressive presentation i haven't i haven't gone through both cuts to see exactly what differences well i mean what's the what's the nutshell version of what do you get in the longer cut is it just more of it is there a different experience or takeaway that you have it's mostly the kids yeah i think it's i think most of that 50 minutes is dedicated to the stuff in in texas in the 50s um i I feel also like the structure while being essentially the same there's some shots that are in different places that at least by my memory, I try not to watch this film too much because I don't want it. I don't want to lose the spell that it casts on me. But but by my recollection, things have been shifted around in sort of minute ways as well as just like a whole plethora of new shots and material that fills in gaps of like Jack's arc of grappling with that side of himself that is a rebel and that it feels out of place. Like there's some. I think huge holes in that character's arc that are filled in and that may or may not be a good thing. I'm not saying it's definitely a good thing, but that definitely feels like the biggest change for me. Do you think the longer cut's going to become the preferred version or? I don't know. I feel like the first, I feel like the, the cinematic version, the theatrical cut is probably a more finessed, balanced experience. I feel like as a film, that one's probably more perfect. But if that does it for you, then, I mean, to have access to these other moments, I think is, you know, um, yeah, it's priceless. I mean, mm-hmm. so, but if you don't like, if you don't like the first cut, the extended cut isn't going to oh, solve right. problems for you. You know, like it's not, it's not like, a, oh, see the extended Superman Batman cut. You'll like it better. You won't. <laughs> if you don't like the first one, I don't think anyone's going to be like, oh, but the extended cut three hours is what I was looking for of that. Um, but I, I don't know. I think I'll probably, I don't know if I can go back to the original cut now because I will probably miss some of the stuff that I like in the extended cut. A few things about the the supplements here. There's um, some pretty fantastic uh, supplements that I think I will probably re- re-watch. Um, in particular, the interview with Alex Ross, uh, the music critic who talks about the use of classical music. Um, I am a huge fan of his writing. And um, he writes about, I think, for The New Yorker, and he has a few books out on on classical music. And he's just uh, an amazing thinker about music, and he's just so, um, you know, well-spoken, um, especially in this, uh, the interview that he, where he talks, where he breaks down all of the different classical musical choices, the history behind the songs that are, the pieces of music that are being used. Um, it is just, like, an amazing little lecture that he gives you about uh, the music in here. Um, and then I'm also a big fan of the, the visual effects um, interview where they go through and show you like what they did to get the shots of um, outer space during, or, you know, like, or inner space, like with the cells, like there's just so many different amazing pieces of, uh, of technology, like, but not like the technology that you would even think of. Like I love when they talk about how they, there's a, there's a moment where the, and this is kind of like spoiling the magic of the, of the movie in a way, but like there's a spot where they, to show the stars, they like poked holes through like, you know, paper, fabric, whatever, like is the black background, but then they like shown the, shown the light through back there and kind of like moved it around. And, uh, it was just like so amazing to think that like this, like 
the stars that you see in uh, some of those shots of like, you know, the gas giants and stuff. And you, you see the lights flickering back there and it's like, it doesn't look like that, you know, it doesn't look like there's someone back there with a flashlight shining it through a little tiny pinprick, but uh, that's what it is. I'd like to say just a couple words about, you know, what I love so much about this film. Um, because a lot of words get thrown around to try to talk about what it is that it does. And it is hard to describe. I'll give it that. But sometimes I think like this expression tone poem, like somehow got attached to this. And that's fine. I feel like in some way, I don't, I don't want any language to imply that somehow it's just that, that it's maybe not quite a film that like, let's put a qualifier on it. Because this is just like, I, to me, it is just the, the, like the, the epitome of what film can do. Like this is just like really advanced thinking in terms of what film language can accomplish. Um, and on, on one of those special features, Ryan, I'm not sure which one, there's some commentary on how Terrence Malick doesn't like to go towards the most obvious, most beautiful moment in a day. Like let's avoid sunsets or something like that that might seem trite or might just be well-worn. Yeah, I mean, they they also talk about his use, uh, like they, that they use natural light for everything. And so they, they had yeah. to limit when they were shooting um, to the times when they could get the best light for different scenes. Um, I mean, obviously he, he... And built different different sets, yeah. like the same room facing different directions so they could always get like light. Yeah. Um, I mean, he, he has, uh, there might be like, like the, like the, the what is the, the magic hour stuff that's in like uh, days of heaven. Um, but I think, yeah, he's like grown and changed from there to here. Like you can see the evolution of him in choosing like these beautiful images. And there's that, sh- the shot with the butterfly when they're just like, you know, waiting to capture like a moment. Um, and not scripting something like that, like just letting, like giving the, the cinematographer, the, the, the team, like the freedom to capture a moment like that and then include that in this, in the final version of the film. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a key word, like moment, not only in the filmmaking, but in like what the experience of memory is, like these indelible little things that somehow stick to our skin. I just feel like the film so effectively captures that, like just being a little kid and seeing something that you kind of, you're affected by, you may not quite understand the context for, like, you know, the guy that has the disability, like, that's a moment from my life, too. Like, I remember encountering a man with a disability and thinking that it was funny and making fun of him and being scolded by our parents, like, don't do that, you don't understand, you know, what his situation is. And I just feel like this film is littered with all these things, script or not. In the editing room, they found these things that make it feel like life, make it feel like what memory does. It becomes this sort of this this incomplete picture because it's all these just small moments of interaction that communicate that fragility and that discomfort with the world. It, it just, it rips me apart. Like, the reason why this is my favorite film is not just because I like it and respect it, but no other film has that effect on me. I, I just, I cry the whole time I watch it. It's just, it just, just gets inside me very quickly. Yeah, I had a pretty special experience. I think it was maybe a couple Christmases or some other kind of holiday where I had my whole family together and we just decided to pop in, not the Criterion version, obviously, but uh, the earlier you know, Blu-ray version from several years ago. And we just all watched it and it really was just 
a wonderful experience just sitting there with my kids watching this and you know it's one of those movies you, you take it in and then at the end you just what do you even say <laughs> you know but it was a, a really cool moment just to share that experience over the course of a few hours uh and just you know just watching my kids faces as we're all just sort of taking it in and all digging it in our own way uh was really a wonderful moment and a great memory of watching a particular film as a family not your typical family film but one that meant a lot to me just to sort of all be there experiencing it together the uh i mean, guess like to talk a little bit more about like the the release the criterion release it was interesting that they put out that alternate cover to begin with you know it, it got changed pretty close to when it was announced like they had that image of jessica chastain with the kids and then it got changed to what it is now and it's a design from um neil keller house the like I, I feel like he is one of the like iconic criterion designers but has been kind of missing uh over the past few years like or at least he's not creating as many covers for them or posters like film posters in general um but he's just got a, a great style um and i think that the the image i mean a movie like this they they had so much amazing um publicity materials uh leading up to the theatrical release like i i there was this amazing like tumblr that uh fox searchlight had set up before the film came out where they were just showing off some of the imagery from the from the movie and you know some of the posters the theatrical posters are still just like i mean i have one of the original theatrical posters for like the the one that has all the like um the baby foot in the middle with all the like square or, you know, like the stills from the film kind of surrounding it. And I think that that is still just like really affecting and in the way that it, like you're saying, it's like these memories, it's meant to be kind of like a photo album of this, of life. And, um, just, a an incredible movie. And like you're saying, it's, it is something that you should kind of maybe like, you know, limit your viewings to, to, keep the magic it's like to to have it feel um you know like more special when you when you do see it but it's um yeah it's it's so so incredible oh it it does make very aesthetically pleasing background wallpaper i mean yeah i'm not not i'm not trying to argue against your point or undercut it but there are just so many beautiful images that uh you know if you just sort of want to have it on oh, yeah a, totally not as a screensaver but just sure. you know just have those little flickering moments of like oh man it's, it's just so gorgeously photographed and everything so yeah it's a real it's a real kind of a kind of a what do they call it a check disc or something i mean it'll 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 show off your system very nicely if you've got a good theatrical home set up there um i I feel like we should talk just even briefly about the voyage of time the um kind of like you know offspring like i don't know like cousin of this film um which features a lot of the material that was used uh, at the like at the beginning, um, or you know like when they're showing like the celestial scenes. I mean, I, um, and it's a movie that I feel like hasn't really it, it got a Blu-ray release in Germany, I think, but I don't know how easy it is to see now if it's available in the states. I have actually haven't looked recently, but um, I was th- that was one that had been kind of like it felt like maybe if Criterion was going to release Tree of Life, that maybe they would also try to get Voyage of Time as maybe like a 
a, a second film in it. Um, but then that might make this box, you know, much more costly to produce. And, um, but I was, I was kind of hoping that this would come along with it so that I could, um, watch it at home. That's got two cuts too, I think. Uh, there's, yeah, yeah, there's like a, a version where Brad Pitt narrates and then there's a version where Kate Blanchett narrates. Do you think we're going to get any more of the recent Malick in Criterion? It sure doesn't feel like it, but I would be like so hesitant to say no because it seems like they have, you know, a pretty solid working relationship with him and that like, you know, kind of like Wes Anderson, like his movies have a like a like Criterion wants to have kind of all of his films gathered together in their collection. It's a a fantastic release and it's, you know, I think um the booklet, the the transfer, the supplements, like this is like the, when I was saying like, you can only choose two and you can't get all three like this. I feel like it's because the booklet, the artwork, um, and then all the supplements, like this feels like my favorite release because it has like all of those materials in it. So in our list of things to talk about, we have, um, a, a, a thread about Filmstruck and talking about our favorite things from Filmstruck. Um, I also, I guess I just wanted to like open the floor. Are there any like runners up or, um, you know, like honorable mentions or films that we would just get like hounded if we didn't discuss? I mean, one of the ones that I feel like we have to mention at this point is the release of the Magnificent Ambersons. Um, it seems like you know, it, it was going to be Scott's pick of the episode if he was on tonight. And, um, and for good reason, like, it's just this incredible release of a film that has had such a, you know, like notorious past, um, and to put together all the materials that they did to create like this package where like the cover art itself feels unfinished, much like the way that the film is kind of like, you know, missing, um, a part of what Orson Welles had originally intended for it to have. And there have been, you know, over the years, there have been all these rumors and hopes and wishes that maybe someone will someday discover, you know, like, like passion of Joan of Arc, they'll find these missing reels, uh, tucked away in someone's collection. And you'll finally be able to see the magnificent Ambersons as Orson Welles intended. And then also to kind of pair this release with the other side of the wind, um, getting, getting its final completion and release, um, just feels like a special year for Orson Welles fans. And, um, you know, this film, Magnificent Emerson's also like the fact that it's been, uh, so poorly treated, uh, on home video, like where, you know, like this is a movie when, when Warner brothers released that box, that amazing box set of citizen Kane, like there was a version of it where it's like, Oh yeah. And by the way, here's a DVD copy of magnificent Ambersons because you know, like that's just what they, they do. Like they couldn't bother to put that on Blu-ray at the time. Yeah. That no, it's an outstanding release. Um, I think the Dietrich von Sternberg box, I mean, that's, that was the other, the other big sumptuous box set i mean it, it pales in comparison to bergman but as a as a product itself it's it's really uh amazing collection of films i mean um marlena dietrich is is a complete iconic screen presence and she's pretty galvanizing in each of these films uh not all of them are going to be to everybody's taste but i i really enjoyed it i went through the set probably a few weeks ago again just felt like i have to really you know give this 
set serious consideration as a best of the year release and i would say it, it narrowly missed the cut if we were doing a top five i'd probably put it up in there just because it's a really a fascinating collection of films and she's really a very uh charismatic personality i mean that's maybe stating the obvious but certainly this is the, that's a set that i think merits uh, at least a mention here uh, I'm just really happy that they upgraded uh, Young Mr. Lincoln, that they put out the Elevator to the Gallows Blu-ray at last so we can get that uncompressed uh, Miles Davis audio mm-hmm. uh, that Heaven Can Wait was upgraded. There were a lot of great reissues and upgrades uh, this year for titles that I just happen to really love. And I completely agree on the uh, Dietrich von Sternberg set being one of, would have been one of the releases of the year if this wasn't one of the most stacked years in recent yeah. memory, as uh, Jordan said. Color of Pomegranates, I also think, is a pretty important release. Um, I know there's another edition uh, from uh, England, Europe, wherever, uh, that maybe has the two different versions. But that's a really uh, a powerful, amazing film, just a, a window into a whole other world. And I also watched the Mizuguchi story from Chikamatsu the other night, and that's a, that is like right up there with Sancho and Nugetsu and uh, other you know great masterpiece, you know, kind of quiet but emotionally you know uh intense japanese classic dramas there i love that stuff so pretty good uh true stories that seemed like a pretty fun release great packaging uh the cd soundtrack that's kind of new territory for criterion and uh pretty fun engaging film for sure I guess I sh- would like to also give a shout out to like the reissues of Silence of the Lambs and Sisters, both, I mean, Silence of the Lambs kind of similar to Princess Bride, where it's like, it's a movie that they had in the past, but then went out of print or is, you know, like not, it's not hard to find, but it's also like, it feels like they maybe weren't going to go back and, and put a new version out. But now that they did, it's like, oh yeah, this is the definitive edition of this film. And uh, it's a real... Um, great package. Also, uh, Dead Man uh, coming into the collection. I think it was a really, really nice Jarmish film to have. Um, and I'll piggyback on the Sternberg set. That's just an incredible set. I hadn't seen very many of those films. Um, and I just started renting them from the library. And just every single one just really took me. Um, and the Magnificent Ambersons, like, exactly what, um, what I love about that cover, Ryan, is, is that you know, that sense in which this film is not finished, will never be finished. And it's such a beautiful way to express that. And the artwork, which I just wanted to point out, continues inside um, the digipack. And then the booklet itself is just, it's a really nice touch to have the staples placed where they are, which makes it feel like a little personal object, like like a script. Um, just really exquisite. So finally, uh, before we end tonight's episode, I feel like it's important that we, um, once again, and we've already spent a lot of time um, on various podcasts and um, online writing a lot, obviously, um, but we should remember Filmstruck and kind of what it meant um, for all of us in, you know, in, and maybe touch on like um, something, you know, like a, a pairing, a, f- a little mini festival, you know, like some kind of uh, something that was unique to Filmstruck um, that, you know, maybe has stuck with us. Um, and so we can just go around here and, um, I guess, David, let's um, talk about what your, I guess, uh, lasting memory or favorite thing or sure, something. Sure, sure. 
Well, obviously for my podcast, uh, Filmstruck contributed quite a few titles. Uh, the Scandalous Adventures of Burakan that Eric, Eric and I uh, talked about. And um, yeah, several others, you know, Japanese films and, and just other obscurities. Uh, what was the uh, Fruit of Paradise, Vera Chitilova, that Jordan and I talked about. Uh, so, you know, Filmstruck was a great source for there. But as far as kind of Filmstruck unique features, uh, there was a Frank Borzegi collection that came out uh, that I watched right around the same time as the Moonrise uh, Blu-ray, which is still sort of in my hopper as a review that I'm going to get around to at some point. Maybe we'll do a, a main episode because I really, I really enjoyed that film. And what I understood from Moonrise is that that was Borzegi's kind of last major film, uh, and that he was a guy who sort of had a hard time adjusting to the post-war cinematic landscape, and he had this kind of warm humanism about him and so i said well let, let me find out the you know that that's kind of an interesting theme and i i like those types of films and those types of directors so i had a chance to go through really a lot of borzegi stuff going back to like the 1920s silent era uh, but films like a uh, history is made at night a farewell to arms uh three comrades strange cargo is one that i really enjoyed quite a bit so uh you know i kind of did a cram session got familiar with a director who's just very lightly represented in criterion and is regarded as one of the really legendary important hollywood directors although maybe not talked about quite as much nowadays so i'm really thankful that filmstruck gave me the opportunity to learn more about this guy and I would definitely like to see a few of those titles uh, come out on disc uh, somewhere down the road. Uh, Arik, what about you? Yeah, so um, I, I had a lot of great experiences uh, with Filmstruck uh, over the entirety of the time. There's a, a, a short film uh, that I'm now, of course, completely blanking on the name of that I watched many, many times on there uh, uh, that, I, that I discovered because of there, sorry, uh, that I um, absolutely uh, loved that I now can't remember the name of, so that's not very helpful. Uh, I'll try to, I'll try to look it up after I'm done talking, but before we're done. But, um, uh, when I knew that the service was going away, I kind of tried to, uh, watch as much of it as I, as I could, like many of us did. And uh, one of the things that I tried to focus on was the non criterion things that were on there, because I kind of had a sense that first of all, I don't, I, I didn't want to watch criterion stuff that might very soon be on disc. Second of all, I kind of had a sense that the criterion stuff would find a home and I was kind of more worried about the the, the film struck side of things. But one of the things that I discovered because of that was just a series of four films made by uh, an actress who's actually in three films in the collection, uh, Margaret Rutherford. And she, uh, she was in Blythe spirit, the importance of being earnest and chimes at midnight, but she did four films playing the uh, Agatha Christie character, Miss Marple. And I just completely love these movies. They're goofy and weird. They're kind of like uh, early sixties, uh, MGM weird oddities. I, I don't even know how they were a thing that, that happened, but I just, I loved everything about them. And then uh, because I loved them so much, I, I watched uh, the uh, uh, Angela Lansbury uh, Miss Marple film and whoa, that is a, that is not, that is not great. But, uh, but so just the, the, the fact that something like that, that collection of those four films that they were all on there, they were all watchable. Um, and they were kind of put together in that way was so great. And, and I just would never have, um, have experienced. And now I remember the name of the short film. It's called love you more. And it's, uh, uh, by the same woman, I think who did 40 shades, 50 shades of gray, 
which is not a film I've ever seen, but the 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 short film is it was wonderful. So the, that kind of mixture of sort of things that I would not have discovered otherwise were what made Filmstruck so so wonderful. I mean, I can talk about discoveries I had on there pretty much all night, but um, but yeah, those Margaret Rutherford films, like I actually would really like to find a way to to continue to have those in my life. They're they're really, really wonderful. And then I'll just give one final shout out to a, a Clouseau film that I hope comes to the collection someday. Uh, the Murderer Lives at Number 21, which I also saw on there. And oh my God, that's a great movie. Uh, Jordan, is there was there something that you wanted to talk about with uh, regards to Filmstruck? Yeah, just briefly. I think my my most exciting times in Filmstruck was when I could like invest energy in a one film movement and just see a bunch of stuff that was all connected at the same time. And um, like the Greek weird wave was on there for a little while. And I thought that was pretty cool. Uh, I loved Attenberg. Um, but the Czech film collection that they had on there was kind of always there. And so that was just a really strong collection of stuff that I had never seen. You know, it's not stuff that's in the Eclipse box set. And I'm talking about, you know, Junk Shop, The Crimator, The Ear, All My Good Countrymen, and the one David mentioned, Fruit of Paradise. Um, really diverse, um, incredible films, each one. Um, and so I'm hoping that that's not something we'll lose access to. I think Criterion has a maybe a long-term relationship with that material. But all of those films were really, really um, ones that will stick with me forever. I guess the, the one film struck thing that, you know, is something that I, I talk a lot about in different podcast episodes that we've done over the years is just my love of supplements and i really loved how filmstruck was able to incorporate um you know all the different materials that would go into a criterion release in their you know criterion edition pages um but also specifically um the fact that they were able to finally integrate commentary tracks with all of these films um something that like I, th- I feel like maybe Hulu tried to experiment with doing something like that. And, um, it just, you know, no one else does this. Like no one else really has these, or at least if they do, like, it's not, it's not a, like a industry standard of like, Oh, we're just going to, you know, have a different audio streaming track. Um, and I don't know if it's like a technical thing or if it's just, um, you know, a cost or like no one like the too small of a portion of the population would actually end up watching these to to you know make it to justify it but one of my favorites of recent memory was just the fact that they were able to um release the uh king kong you know one of the very early laser discs the very first laser disc with commentary track on it and they were able to put that commentary track on uh, Filmstruck and you know it's a favorite movie of mine I have that laser disc with the the commentary track it was like you know one of the first things I bought when I started like thinking that I wanted to get into collecting the Criterion Collection more than just buying random ones here and there it was just like oh this this is special this this release in particular is special and uh, it's something that I want to have like you know as a part of the collection so um Thanks guys for doing this for for sticking with me here. Uh, three hours later, um, we should uh, wrap things up at this I point. Miss it. We've got a tradition going here, so. Um, I mean, we had a couple of people drop out of the show, and it's like, how how long would this have gone? If, I guess we would have tried, tried to like r- go through faster. But um, I mean, we I, we, we wish like that Trevor and Scott could have yeah, right. been on the show tonight to uh, talk with us and. Um, 
you know, we obviously love them. And so no hard feelings with that. Uh, but we're going to end things tonight. Um, obviously this conversation can continue on in the Facebook groups, um, and on Twitter, you can find us, uh, all online. I'll have links to everything there. Um, you can find, and then I, I would, I definitely like David was mentioning, I would suggest people join the criterion now Facebook group that will help, um, you know, you be, if you're not already a member of that, like you'll be able to interact with all the other listeners of the show, um, who are just, uh, some of the best people online. And, oh yeah. Uh, and, and on my criterion reflections, the group, we also did a top three poll or not a poll, but just, uh, let people list their top three. That was a pretty good thread the other day. So, uh, we can continue it over there as well. Yeah, definitely join uh, the Criterion Reflections group and Criterion Now. And uh, don't bother with those other Criterion Collection groups. Cause <laughs> 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 um, thank you guys for doing this tonight. Thanks for sticking it out as late as it is. And uh, for everyone who listens, thanks for all of your support and um, you know all the nice messages that you send us whenever new episodes go up. Um, obviously we all know that there aren't as many episodes going up, um, these days, you know, for all kinds of reasons, um, except for David, of course, with his Criterion Reflections podcast. Well, I'm taking a little bit of a break as well <laughs> I'm between seasons, so I'm going to, I'm going to give it a little bit of a rest, but I'm glad <laughs> to be doing this with you and nice to have you back in the swing of it oh, too, thanks. Ryan. Um, well, everyone, I'm going to put as many links into uh, tonight's show notes as I can fit. And so you can go there if you need um, quick access to any of the films that we talked about tonight. Um, I'm sure we'll be back in the next week or so once the wacky drawing uh, is unveiled for New Year's and we get a glimpse into what Criterion has in store for us uh, in 2019. Thanks, everyone. 